he's looking for a new vocal warm-up. I am a pirate king. It sounded like a car backfiring and then falling over. Welcome to Up Yours Downstairs, the podcast that's got some good news for a change. <laughs> I'm Kelly Anakin. And I'm Tom Schneider. We are properly married. I'm sorry if it's a disappointment. Uh, you know, marriage is a constant, uh, struggle. Uh, I, you know. Ups I, and downs and, uh. And the swings and the roundabouts and whatnot. Sure. That's a British thing, I think. Uh, possibly. Yeah. Yeah, marriage is a real Piccadilly circus. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> We can all agree on that. Indeed. It Welcome. sounds way more exciting than it is. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, cousins. We are here to recap Downton Abbey Series 5, Episode 5, mm-hmm. the golden episode, if you will, <laughs> yes. of Series 5. For all you numerologists out there. But before we get into that, it's time to announce our cousin of the week. Cousin Christina writes, Greetings, Kelly and Tom. I started listening to your podcast not too long ago and have since binge listened to all of your Downton Abbey and Mr. Selfridge episodes. However, since I find it hard to listen and work at the same time, I haven't had enough free time to listen to every single podcast you have done. So I was just wondering, why do you guys hate Branson so much? You two were fine with him and at times seemed to really enjoy his character during Series 4 as well as during the instant takes you did of Series 5. So it was quite alarming to hear you trash him so frequently in your most recent podcasts. Obviously, I do respect your opinion on the matter, but I am just curious as to why there was such a big shift in your attitude towards Branson from Series 4 to Series 5. Thank you for all the amazing content you have been providing. I feel like my vocabulary has improved just by listening to you. Keep doing what you're doing. I can't wait until next week's podcast. Signed, Cousin Christina. Well, thank you for writing, Cousin Christina. Yes. Always great to hear from our cousins. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we talked about this a little bit when we got this email about why we hate Branson so much now. Yeah. And I think we did talk about it, although it may not have been on a Downton Abbey episode. It might have been on a hiatus episode. Right. Uh, But since there are obviously a pretty significant number of people who only listen for the Downton Abbey coverage. Yes. Uh, basically, what really happened, uh, we think, is we watched The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Right. Uh, which is all about the Irish struggle for independence. Mm-hmm. And uh, that made us real mad at Branson. It did. And, you know, we basically kind of forgotten about the fact that he used to care about Ireland. Yeah. You know. And just seeing that, it was like, you know, this was a real life and death struggle that was really serious and significant and, uh, you know, deadly and violent and, and so much was at stake. And what it was reduced to by the show and through Branson himself was just sort of this sort of little inconvenient thing that was happening that he went over thinking it was all just like sunshine and asking the British to please leave and and then it turned out it wasn't that and and i mean the the parallel implication by the show that all the irish landowners were basically just a bunch of lord granthams and if the irish had ever just asked politely instead of being all uppity and you know violent and things then things would have just worked themselves out well and and it definitely you know we never spend any time in ireland right on downton abbey and you don't see then the violent occupation mm-hmm. and, you know, egregious oppression of the Irish people by the British. Right. And uh, certainly there's an element of our shared Irish heritage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kind of, you know, because we were never really told 
at least I wasn't really told about this. Right. I feel like my Irish heritage basically went up to the potato famine. <laughs> and then they were like, that's it. That's the last thing that happened. Everyone came to America. Uh, there's no Ireland anymore. <laughs> except right. for tourism. And uh, it's great. Yeah. So... That's pretty much the reason, and you may agree or disagree that that is a good reason mm-hmm. to be angry. Yeah. Uh, but we also wanted to highlight this letter because if you don't agree with our frequently vehement opinions <laughs> right. about this show, uh, please feel free to write in and disagree. Yeah. This is not super interesting when we all agree on everything. Yeah, and you know, we can certainly be be a prisoner of our own opinions that we've decided on you know so if you know there could be lights that we could be seeing things in that that we're missing out on yeah so you know there's a lot of different eyes on this show and we'd love to hear those thoughts so i will say again lucy lethbridge's uh assessment of it really (laughs) confirmed our bias that's true uh yeah Clearly, we have not had our minds changed about Branson, but there may be things out there. Oh, absolutely. You know, do you think the homely liberal is not homely, for example? Right. Feel free to disagree. Yeah. And some of you don't. Yeah, it's true. And that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So, yes. Thank you so much again, Cousin Christina, for writing in. Mm -hmm. Remember, if you would like to write to us, you can reach us by Telegram. We are upyoursdownstairs at gmail.com. Carrier Pigeon, a.k.a. Twitter. We're at 5MaggieSmiths. That's at 5, the number 5, Maggie Smiths. Or you can simply search up yours downstairs exclamation point on Facebook. Yes, and I would like to make a quick announcement, uh, which is that as of this morning, we finally got it set up on iTunes where you can uh, download all of our episodes uh, all the way back to Felix, if you're listening, we're not sorry, our very first episode. <laughs> oh, Felix. <laughs> yeah. I miss him. Uh, so if any of you have just been in iTunes and were wondering why you couldn't find those things and want to hear us stumbling our way through our very first episodes, uh, that's there now. And we thank Gino at Bald Move for figuring that out because we don't know how iTunes works. Yeah, we sure don't. Yeah. Uh, and also now that that's been resolved, we are going to update uh, Podkicker, Podcrusher, all the pods. <laughs> sure. Uh, various places where podcasts can be downloaded. Um, so be on the lookout for that. Thank you for your patience yes. during this very confusing time. <laughs> right. Podcasts, man. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the Dowager quote, but is this a blank or an implement of torture? Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. She sure did say. She sure did say a thing that I have forgotten. <laughs> Let me worry about blank. <laughs> All right. So, Downton Abbey. Here we go. Let's do it. So we see a car pulling up to a sadly small group of servants. Yeah, certainly gone are the days when just a battalion of servants <laughs> would greet a guest at Downton. Indeed. Well, it's just Rosamond anyway. Ugh. <laughs> so she walks in, uh, Molesley brings tea into the library. Uh, thus establishing the tracking shot that they always like to open things with. Uh, Rose is there reading the newspaper, and she is reading about a nudist colony that a man has set up in Essex called the Moonella Group. Which... <laughs> it's a bit on the nose. It, it is a bit. A bit on the rump. <laughs> the Dowager is confused, so Lord Grantham explains what a nudist colony is. This is like the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Right. Like... Again, this is just one of those moments where you're like, this literally never would have happened in the first two seasons. Right. Well, I mean, this is like, you know, this is like trying to explain to your grandmother what Burning Man is. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She thinks that Essex, being so damp, doesn't seem like a great place for a nudist colony. Uh, But Isabel imagines that they were not seeking her approval. Which is a sweet burn, Isabel. Yeah. She's she's starting to be able to keep up. (laughs) Right. Uh, And then Rosamond 
casually asks Edith to come by later and talk about something in private. Uh, well, she specifically says this farmer's child that you've taken an interest in. Right. And I'm like, why are you saying this in front of everybody? Right. Someone's going to notice. Like, I know you both like to think that no one's paying attention to you. <laughs> yeah. But people are totes paying attention to you. They are. Lord Grantham asks Rosamond how long she's staying. She says for a week. And Lord Grantham says that later he's going to a, a bash for his deputy lieutenants. Uh, lieutenants? Yeah, thank you. Him being Lord Loot, as he calls it. Uh, is that like he's like the, the balladeer or something? I am a pirate king. <laughs> All right, that's Gilly. Um, <laughs> and so he will be staying the night in Sheffield. Uh, and then the Dowager asks Isabel if she has reached a decision about Murty. She says she thinks she should tell Murty first if she has, which, fair point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dowager says that she is like Ellen Terry in the way she draws out her plotline or whatever. Uh, okay. So that is totally not an apt comparison at all. Oh, okay. Uh, Ellen Terry was an actress who was popular in the late Victorian and early Edwardian years. Uh-huh. Um, she came from a family of actors and she lived... I forget where they lived. They lived in a place. Uh, and so basically she was raised in the theater. She was a child actor. And then at the age of 16 was the child bride of this artist. Oh, wow. And she went on to have like, I think a total of three marriages and, you know, a number of relationships. So if the dowager's trying to say that Isabel is like her in her frequency <laughs> of affairs, she is incorrect. And right. uh, Ellen Terry was also one of the most celebrated actresses in Britain. Right. So I seriously doubt Isabel's up to that standard. I would imagine so. I mean, I would imagine it being the Victorian age, she uh, was, you know, histrionic and uh, drew, drew things out, you know, in that sense. That's probably true. I'm guessing that's what that must have meant. Uh, the most famous uh, painting of Lady Macbeth is Ellen Terry. Actually, oh. I believe it's a, um, what's that guy's name? Waterhouse? Uh, yeah. He did all those, like, classical uh, literary women. Yeah, that's a guy. Yeah, he's a guy. But so (laughs) the picture of of Lady Macbeth putting that crown on, Mm, uh, that is Ellen Terry. Oh, wow. Yeah. So if you want to see Ellen Terry, uh, well, you've all got Google. (laughs) You figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Sorry, I just spent a moment there trying to think... Uh, you know, because you said Lady Macbeth, but we're doing a podcast. And I was like, I wonder if there's a thing for podcasts. Like, you can't say Chris Hardwick's name or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> out, out, damn nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anything horrible enough has happened yet in the world of podcasting. No, that's true. It's still such a new media. It always cracks me up, actually. Because, like, somebody said to me the other day, like, oh, podcasts are coming back. And I'm like... Podcasts never happen. Like, <laughs> right. They still have not been exploited to their full potential. Yeah. Uh, I say to any investors who are listening <laughs> to this podcast. So get out that checkbook. No, well, like when cereal was so popular. Right. You're like, oh, you know, people are going to start paying attention to podcasts. And I was like, no, they're not. <laughs> right. This podcast is by the same people that made this American life. Like most yeah. podcasts aren't that. Yeah. And even, I mean, even the stuff in the Nerdist Network, I mean, they have an incredible, oh, yeah. you know, reach. But at the same time it's all very niche stuff yeah there's yeah. no like nbc of podcasts right i mean i assume nbc has podcasts you know that some you <laughs> know Lord. elderly senior vice president was like get one of these whippersnappers on the podcast <laughs> uh talk about smash get chevy chase to do a podcast <laughs> in character <laughs> uh we fired him sir what <laughs> <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
man. That was really fun. <laughs> it was. And that brings us, <laughs> by a roundabout method, to our first recurring segment, a bit early this time, uh, Fashion Backwards with our naked know-it-all, Kelly. Thank you, Tom. Uh, in case anyone at home is uncomfortable, I am fully clothed it's for true. this segment. Okay, so... Uh, Rose has, uh, appropriately in the year 1924, mm-hmm. discovered that this Munella group is forming a nudist colony in Essex. And, uh, this was the first of its kind in Great Britain. And apparently Munella was the club name of the owner of the property. Okay. So all of these people. As in the name of his club or as in? As in the name that that, that person used okay. when okay. with the other people gotcha. who were naked. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, okay, so we're going to get really deep into this. <laughs> that may be a poor choice of words. Oh, they're all going to be poor choices of words, I Kelly. can't believe <laughs> the things that I have read here. Uh, <laughs> I really can't. Uh, okay. I just, okay, and I want to state up front, like, I read all the things, all the philosophy and the history behind naturism. Mm-hmm. Uh, nudism, incidentally, everyone, is not a thing. Ah. Uh so behind the philosophies of naturism, I'm like, yeah, like that all makes sense. But then I'm like, naked people. Nope. <laughs> not interested. And look, and I, uh, I will practice, uh, and let me just make sure I've got the correct name. Uh, personal nudity. I will practice that alone in my home. Sure. With my spouse. Yeah. Uh, if we had any kids, I'd be like, you know, you're going to see your kids naked and they're going to see you naked. Right. But we're not going to like actively dedicate time, <laughs> which is a thing that happens. No, I know. Uh, I had a teacher in college and she and her husband and her son practiced family naked time. To be fair, you were a theater major. I was a theater major <laughs> and that kid, I knew him when he was like six and he was like a complete sociopath already. Yikes. And then, uh, that couple divorced shortly after I graduated. <laughs> so I don't have a real strong belief in naturism as a family strengthener, right. but I'm sure there are plenty of counterexamples. I think, you know, if you're trying to be a naturist, even in Yellow Springs, Ohio, <laughs> uh, you're probably not in the best environment for it. Could be. So at any rate, the society is called the New Gymnosophy Society, and... <laughs> Oh my God. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, nobody knows who Munella was. Oh. Um, most of the other identities of the people involved have been revealed at this point. I'm only going to reveal their club names for hilarious reasons. <laughs> Chong and Lorelli. Flang or Flong. It's spelled with like the, the Welsh double F at the beginning oh, okay. of the second instance. Gart. <laughs> Munella, Thwang, Tob, and Zex. Uh, also, Zex's name, uh, his real name is Rex. So I feel like Zex <laughs> really kind of phoning it in. <laughs> they're like, what's your name? And he was like, uh, Zex. And they're like, really? And he's like, yeah, screw you. Yeah. Um, so actually, they didn't I like call- Thwang myself. <laughs> <laughs> Look, man. <laughs> Thwang, uh, oh God. Look, uh, I feel like there should be a, a website where you can determine your own Moonella group name. Uh, they're all, they're all derived from like sound effects in the old Batman series. <laughs> Kerpow! <laughs> so there are a couple different time, types of, uh, naturism that one can practice. They are personal and family nudity, which is obviously like restricted to the home. Right. Social nudism, which is more, the uh, kind of thing you're talking about with the Munella group. Mm-hmm. Special facilities uh, that are 
this is like subcategories. There are special facilities that you can go to. There's nude beaches, obviously. Right. A lot of people uh, at a certain point were really into nude sports. Mm. It was this whole sort of revival of like the neoclassical ideal. Yeah. And uh, actually the Olympic poster for the 1912 games featured three nude male figures oh. with their genitals obscured, but uh it was deemed to be too scandalous Whoa. in many quarters. But then that actually continued through the 20s. Mm-hmm. So whoever they kept hiring, these <laughs> artists were like, "Fuck you, man. I didn't spend all that time in life class <laughs> to not be able to draw these naked dudes throwing discuses. Disky? <laughs> Disky? No. Anyway. Yeah. It's like, listen, it says right on my resume, if you hire me, I'm going to draw a naked dude. (laughs) (laughs) Purveyor of fine nudes. Fine nude dudes. Uh, And then there's festival naturism, which seems to have pretty much come about in the 60s. Uh, Uh, You know, just probably people on psychedelics stripping down. (laughs) So... Basically, uh, gender segregated nude bathing, for example, was kind of the norm, mm. uh, up until the late 18th century. Okay. And that's where you start seeing these real taboos against nudity starting to come into play. And that obviously in the late, uh, 19th century feeds directly into Victorianism mm-hmm. and taboos around the body becoming very, very pronounced. Mm-hmm. So. It really started in terms of the the current modern day philosophy behind Western naturism. Uh, started in Germany, mm-hmm. as many philosophical movements have. Yeah, uh, a guy named Heinrich Pudor. Pudor. Uh, he wrote under a pseudonym Heinrich Sham. So obviously, uh, naturism and uh, nom de guerres really yeah. uh, kind of mutually beneficial here. I mean, also if my name was Pudor, I would also write under. <laughs> Uh, so he published a series of philosophical papers in 1902 about naturism and then went on to write a three-volume treatise called Nacht Kultur. Okay. Uh, you know, Nacht being naked mm-hmm. in, in German. So he very much uh, discussed the benefits of nudity and advo- he advocated for the sport angle. Uh-huh. And also this is very much of that sort of uh, the health uh, – fads of the time you know like the kellogg diet and all that kind of thing right um and you know there's also this connection between um curing rickets in children and mm. naturism uh-huh. uh since obviously they weren't getting enough sunlight you know right, you're, right. you're exposing the the greatest amount of your body to the sun and you know getting rid of that pesky <laughs> case of the rickets <laughs> you picked up you mangy kids <laughs> Um, the first club that was organized for nudists is called the Freilichtpark, uh, translates to Free Light Park, mm-hmm. and that was opened near Hamburg in 1903 by a guy named Paul Zimmerman. Uh, and then the 1920s is when the philosophy behind naturism really started to spread throughout Europe, oh, okay. which makes a certain amount of sense, because if you look at sort of the consolidation of power and isolationism that, uh, you know, Prussia, later Germany, was practicing during that time, Mm -hmm. there wouldn't have been uh, as much incentive for that kind of thought to get out of Germany. Right. And, you know, other places certainly weren't going in and, like, looking for it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, let's see, by 1951, which is a huge skip ahead, and we'll kind of come back to sort of some of the things that happened in those intervening years, Mm -hmm. um, but a bunch of uh, national federations that had formed in different countries formed the International International Naturist Federation, and uh, 
there's a lot of parallels here actually to um, medicinal or legalized marijuana hmm. where, you know, there are some places that prefer to, you know, designate geographical areas for naturist use versus like clubs that require you to have a membership and give your name and stuff. So uh-huh, uh-huh. there's, there's different schools of thought in terms of whether or not you should be naked uh, as yourself or perhaps under <laughs> the name Zex. <laughs> <laughs> So, like most philosophies, there's no one definition of what this is. But in 1974, the INF defined naturism as a lifestyle in harmony with nature expressed through personal and social nudity and characterized by self-respect of people with different opinions and of the environment. Um, so, I mean, that's a pretty meaningless statement. Right. But, you know, you've kind of got to deal with people who just like being naked and people who feel like it's a larger, you know, spiritual expression yeah. of like their beings, man. Right. So there are several reasons that people would become a naturist, ecological or environmental. They want to feel one with nature, health, uh, getting plenty of sun, fresh air and water, diet. You know, sometimes, you know, it's an extension of a sort of uh, veganism or a vegetarian right. or even a teetotal where it's sort of like a detox mm-hmm. kind of thing. I don't see why you have to be naked to detox, but <laughs> equality and respect between other humans. Well, you um, can't hide a flask anywhere if you're naked. That's also true. <laughs> Uh, spirituality, you know, figuring out that we're just animals. Yeah. Uh, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery <laughs> Channel. Uh, pedagogy. No, that's not what it's about. Uh, children should be respected as equals instead of being patronized. That feels to me like we're getting into like Humbert Humbert territory, but. Well. I understand. I understand. I also just think it, again, seems equally possible clothed or naked. Yeah. But. Uh, well, the next point is equality that clothes build social barriers and social nudity leads to acceptance regardless of one station in life. Uh, I would also argue that uniforms, uh, cheap, accessible <laughs> uniforms can achieve the same goal. Yeah. Although actually, that actually makes more sense too, though, you know, when you look at, I mean, you know, looking at Downton Abbey, how defining clothes are in that, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's still obviously true in any society, but back then so much more true mm-hmm. that, a clothes said so much more about who you were and who was yeah. better than who. Well, and particularly in the wake of World War One, and I think you know that's obviously mm-hmm. not coincidental. Like the entire Western world just went through this enormous trauma mm-hmm. that touched everybody, so people are looking for answers uh, in their own naked bodies, right? And also, yeah, the, also probably not looking for uniforms at that point. Yeah, that's also probably solution. true. <laughs> uh, the final reason is liberty. This is my favorite. Uh, out of all the reasons, no one has the right to tell others or their children that they must wear clothes. <laughs> so if any of you out there have been telling your children they must wear clothes, you are doing it wrong. <laughs> Naturally, in America, the fucking transcendentalists loved this shit. I am on record as hating the transcendentalists, and that remains so. Right. Well, I mean, they were the hippies of their day. I know, and yet I find them, I find them worse than the hippies all somehow. Right. I I don't know why, I but that's know. all right. I don't either. Well, you're you're one. You're quick in your hatreds. I am quick in my <laughs> hatreds. <laughs> Hence, a lot of the things that have happened on this podcast. <laughs> no, I just found them. It, partly, it was the teetotal thing. The transcendentalists well, were into that. Actually, sure. no, that's exactly why. That's exactly why I distinctly remember being in my sophomore literature class, finding out there were teetotalers. I was a teetotaler. <laughs> yeah, in high school. Well, sure. And I was like. 
fuck you, transcendentalists. Listen. I don't care if you wanted women to vote. That is some fucked up shit. If I don't have the right to tell you to put some clothes on, you don't have the right to tell me not to get hammered. <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent point. Thank you. Um, so I'm not going to go through all of the different places mm-hmm. and we're going to focus primarily on Britain in terms of this kind of finally getting exported. But it is worth noting that Poland uh, was pretty much on the same timeline as Germany mm-hmm. in terms of starting to establish these, um, you know, formalized philosophies behind naturism, as were the Scandinavian countries. Mm. Okay, so, uh, blah, blah, blah. So the English gymnosophical, gymnif- gymnif- God, <laughs> God, that is so hard to say. Well. Uh, probably easier if you're naked. Yeah, probably. They met for discussions at the Minerva Cafe at 144 High Holborn in London, which is also the headquarters of the Women's Freedom League. Uh, although I think that probably they were clothed when they did that. Um, so the actual club only lasted until 1926 because somebody was building on adjacent land that mm. would have looked and seen their naked forms. <laughs> right. um, but there did continue this sort of social idea of nudity. And uh, by 1943, there were all these sun clubs. Mm. And so they all came together and formed the British Sunbathers Association. Uh, and then, of course, in 1954, a group of those clubs who were upset about the way uh, the BSBA was being run split off to form the Federation of British Sun Clubs. And then in uh, 1961, the BSBA, not the new one, the old one, decided that the term nudist was inappropriate, should be discarded in favor of naturist. And uh, basically, they were in a fight until 1964, at which point they became the Central Council for British Naturism, which still exists, but it is now just called British Naturism. Mm. And uh, Less Soviet-sounding. Yes, indeed. Well, <laughs> and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the Soviets oh, well. in just a moment here. Uh, but the first official, like, nude beach, you know, so not just a bunch of naked people being like, <laughs> hey, get out of here. <laughs> Incidentally, people who wear clothes are called textiles. Ah. Um, there is a little bit of disagreement about what they should be called. The general accepted term is textile. Uh, but some people prefer the firm textilist. But I can see why textilist is uh, not that great because it is hard to say. Yeah. But right now, currently in the UK, textile. So, okay. you know, you, you and I right now and probably most of the people listening <laughs> to this are just a bunch of dirty, dirty textiles. <laughs> um, so the first official nude beach was at Fairlight Glen in Covehurst, which is near Hastings. I don't know if it's East Hastings. <laughs> uh, that was in 1978. Uh, Wikipedia is careful to note that this is not to be confused with Fairlight Cove, which is two kilometers to the east. So if you're going to go, <laughs> make sure you get the right Fairlight. Yes. And so the U.S. and Canada started the, the naturist stuff a little bit after it started in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it obviously traveled there from Germany, um, but we're not going to get into it that much because nobody cares. That's true. Uh, but in Germany, this is what's really interesting to me. So after World War II, 
the West Germans did not really continue with naturism because of the heavy influence of religion mm-hmm. uh, following the split. Mm-hmm. But East Germany actually did continue doing this. It was one of the few freedoms they were allowed under the very repressive communist regime, although they couldn't have clubs mm. because they could have been subversive, but they did have you know areas that were clothing free. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, after reunification... It became less common in the East as you have this influx of West Germans and also more conservative uh, immigrants, immigrants, excuse me, immigrants coming um, from Turkey and people who are more conservative Muslims. So it kind of Mm -hmm. faded in popularity. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also found uh, a bit on naturism in Asia because what's interesting is that one of the first British nudist clubs was actually in India. Uh, There was a guy who was there. And it was just like him and like three friends. Yeah. But then he got transferred and died. So well. that ended. Um, but <laughs> That'll do it. Overall, um, nudity in Asia is not really tolerated very well. There mm-hmm. is some sort of um, religious or spiritual ritualized nudity that's okay. But as a general rule, people are not fans mm. of it there. Um, yeah. And overall, the other thing that I want to point out is if you are a naturist and this is due in large part to the influence of the British practitioners, it's very, very much divorced from sexuality. When it first started in Germany, there was sort of this understanding that, you know, okay, a bunch of people are all hanging out naked. There's going to be some unavoidable uh-huh. sexualization but the brits came in and were like nope <laughs> not happening yeah there's nothing at all sexual about being completely <laughs> naked in the company of a bunch of other completely naked people right um so yeah that is naturism and i believe that the dowager is right to think a essex being so damp is a bad place <laughs> and in general not really my particular cup of tea well, Although, again fine. i'm like yeah we all should be equal and yeah like nature Although I hate nature. You do hate nature. But like I like appreciate, I respect nature. You appreciate nature. nature. You think that people should feel comfortable with their bodies and not be ashamed of them. Just not all at once. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I just, no, as I'm reading this, I just, it was a real uh, riot of emotion (laughs) within my breast. (laughs) Yeah. My fully clothed breast. (laughs) Um, no, but I actually have to give it to Baron Julian in this particular instance, or possibly Neem. Wow. This is so sexy. It almost has Neem <laughs> written all over it. It's, except that it's not at all sexy, but right. you know. Well, yeah. Titillating. Yeah. But uh, this really is a sign of the changing times. And mm-hmm. I think people forget how progressive the interwar period really was. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, after World War II, particularly in America, and I think also in Great Britain, mm-hmm. although they had the national health, which I think puts them on a completely different trajectory. But I think socially, like in terms of like culturally, mm-hmm. I think that, that Britain and America were both very the same way in the 50s in terms of that conservatism. Well, yeah, and that idea of, of the nuclear family yeah. being all yeah. and, and you know women's place being in the home. You know, there was this enormous groundswell of progressive thought happening between uh, 1919 and... 1939 Mm -hmm. which is of course also in part why the nazis rose to power because in germany they're seeing this happen and they're like uh that's got to stop yeah well Um, and uh also as lord grantham pointed out that we pushed them too hard and kept their economy from ever being any good that is also true but yeah um which is something well but i mean that's also i think to the uh you know the perception of the german people at the time 
like they've got that external pressure, but then the internal pressure where it's like there is never going to be a before the war for them. Right. Which, you know, is connected, but it's mm-hmm. it's like, mm-hmm. you know, if we can squash these internal elements, then maybe we can get there. Right, right, right. Well, thank you, Kelly. You're welcome. That was really fun to research. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, no, I mean, it's just, it's gotten a lot harder as we move through history with this show to find things that we haven't already covered. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fashion or in history. Right. So it's nice when something new comes up. Yes, it so is. So keep them coming, name. <laughs> That's right. So back to the episode. Mrs. Patmore enters the Carson cave and says that Mrs. Hughes can stay. She's got good news and old aunts died. <laughs> Hooray. That's fantastic. Uh, actually, the good news is not the, that the aunt died, but she's left uh, Mrs. Patmore money. Uh, a few hundred quid that her aunt's husband made in the baking game. Oh, wow. Fast-paced. Uh, yeah. And apparently that's more than Mrs. Hughes has ever saved. So that's mm-hmm. a quick little uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge about the exchange rate at the time. <laughs> Uh, but she wants Carson's advice on what to do with it. Mrs. Hughes jumps in immediately <laughs> and speaks for several nations <laughs> when she recommends that Mrs. Patmore speak to Mr. Branson or Dr. Clarkson because they're still in the game. Uh, I'm not sure in what <laughs> sense Dr. Clarkson is still in the game, unless you're referring to the Murdy games, right. which doesn't seem like it would qualify him for investment advice. He's still a series regular for some reason. Maybe so she's referring that. to the fact that he talks to a lot of different people. Yeah, that's true. Um, and, you know, Branson, I think, is an excellent resource yeah. on that sort of thing. Although I'm not entirely sure what the protocol is on her speaking to him at this point. I mean, I don't yeah, think he would yeah, ever, you know, he would never be like, no, I'm not going to talk to you. Right. But, it, but talk to the monkey. <laughs> right. But Patmore might not, uh, you know, consider it or, yeah. or want to. But, I mean, to. you know, obviously he's much more in touch with what's going on investment wise. Yeah. Meanwhile, Carson's like. I'm glad you ask. I've invented a new device for decanting wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Carson's very offended, and he says he's going to ring the gong, which definitely uh, recommends him. Like, unless it's you know, like what is this? Uh, was it, who did the gong? Star Search? No, the yeah, Gong Show. The Gong. Oh, right. That will, that would be it. Yeah, <laughs> it's right in the name. <laughs> In Rosamond's room, which appears to be the interior of the human heart. Well, I'm glad they found a use for that set. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they had to after, you know, the High Clare Castle people were like, get out of our castle! <laughs> and they're like, only part of it. <laughs> Lenny's sitting in the corner, out of shot. She has nowhere else to go. <laughs> uh, but Rosamond promises not to eat Edith, so that's good news, I guess. Yeah, uh, Edith's skeptical. She is. Also, uh, Rosamond does look like the type to eat you. Yeah, she does. But she asks what, Edith asks what Mary told Rosamond, and it was just that there's this farmer's daughter that Edith has been sniffing around. Uh, Rosamond says that she feels sorry for Mrs. Schroeder, and I'm like, wait a minute, you mean Sally? No, that would be Lucy. That would be Lucy. Why did I write down Sally? I don't know, man. I was just reading it. Listen, man, I don't know what's up with your Freudian slips. I ruined that joke. Your Uh, Schultzian slips, (laughs) which is very hard to say. Yeah. If anybody's looking for a new vocal (laughs) warm-up. Which I'm sure somebody is. Anyway, Edith says that Mrs. Schroeder has adopted another child, thus making the fact that they stole her baby completely ethical. Team Schroeder. (laughs) I hope they're training that baby to be an assassin and sending it into England to kill Edith. (laughs) You have my sister. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. 
Rosamond asks if she can see Marigold, uh, but Edith says that Mrs. Pigman thinks that Edith is being a nuisance. So I guess Edith finally picked up on that, which is nice. Uh, and Rosamond says that in that case, they are in a situation of infinite danger, which brings Edith no emotional compensation in return. And Edith's like, oh shit, you're right. Well, this wasn't how it was supposed to be. Right. There was supposed to be emotional compensation. There was. Uh, look, the way this is going, I just hope Mrs. Schroeder reaches out to Mrs. Pigman and is like, hey, you want to form a baby-stealing support group? <laughs> also, you've got some kids. Let's train them up to be assassins. They're already in England. <laughs> they can be our cover. <laughs> In the library, the omnipresent library, Lord Grantham asks Branson about the homely liberal and uh, Lord Lord Branson. <laughs> Lord Branson. Lord Branson, traitor to his people. <laughs> uh, anyway, Branson says, don't worry, Bray. Bray? Okay. <laughs> Branson says, don't worry, brah. I'm not going to invite her over for dinner again. Then Lord Grantham says that Cora would invite the homely liberal in a second if she thought Branson wanted her. And I'm like, yeah, because you've been a real dick to her. Yeah. She understands basic courtesy. Yeah. Anyway, Branson says that he respects the family, but he has a different vision for the country uh, that he shares with the homely liberal, and she makes him feel not like a freak or a fool. I'm like, if you feel like a freak or a fool, that's kind of on you because you're very vanilla. Yeah. And very boring. Right. How does being with the Crawleys make you feel like a fool, for God's right? sake? Well, well, I mean, you know, it's not like he's had an opinion since he came back. No, that's true. Or at least since the beginning of this season. Yeah. I can't ever remember what's gone on. No, I know. So, uh, Lord Grantham is all, well, now you've seen both sides of the argument, and whoever would have thought he could befriend the Dowager Countess? Ha 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 ha! Thus, essentially making this, uh, Baron Julian's triumph of the will. <laughs> uh,. I'm sorry, I just read Lenny Riefenstahl's uh, Wikipedia entry, and I'm well. very upset about it. <laughs> it's understandable. Mary comes in and ends the conversation by saying that Carson would be very angry with them for having drinks before dinner. Uh, Lord Grantham explains that he poured the drinks himself. Carson wasn't involved. And I'm like, oh, well, that explains why there's scotch spilled all over the floor. Yeah. <laughs> The landed aristocracy they were known for their poor eye-hand coordination. I don't understand which end of the glass to pour into. <laughs> In the servant's kitchen, Carson tells Anna that he's got a note from Officer Bummer. Uh, he says that they found the real killer, so we'll never be hearing from him again. Hooray! Sadly, no. Uh, he says he's coming at 11 to talk to Anna and to Mary, but he does not mention Bates. Thomas looks at them. In a uh, complete waste of that actor's talent. Yes. I'm only referring to him as that actor because I can never remember if it's from <laughs> Collier James or James Collier. I'm pretty sure it's Collier James, though. I think, I see, because I want to say that you're right, but I I almost think that that just sounds better, and that's why we think that, but it's that's really also, the other one. Or we live in some bizarre time slip Ooh. where whatever we say is automatically wrong. It's like fringe. It is like fringe. Or sliders. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Clarkson asks the Dowager Countess why she's come to his office, as do we! <laughs> She is explaining to Dr. Clarkson that Murty likes to talk medicine with Isabel, and she needs Dr. Clarkson's help to separate them because the family has taken the bon bourgeois Isabel <laughs> and transformed her into something less definable. Uh, this is all very vague. Yeah. So Dr. Clarkson breaks it down and asks if she liked Isabel better when she was more middle class. Uh, the Dowager Countess says no. 
that's not exactly it. Dr. Clarkson says that she was easier to understand, perhaps, when she was more middle class. Uh, Dr. Clarkson says it's not weird that, you know, Isabel would want to marry a lord. And then he asks if he can ask a personal question. Dowager Countess is like, oh, yeah, sure, commoner. Lay it on me. (laughs) He asks if she resents Isabel. And the dowager claims not to understand him, even though this same point has been brought up no less than four times. (laughs) The dowager asks Dr. Clarkson if he wants to see Isabel live a life devoid of industry in a large and drafty house with a man who bores her to death, which is not an accurate description of her relationship with Murdy whatsoever. Uh, But Dr. Clarkson says that he doesn't want to see that, so their duty is clear. This is two delusional people uh, (laughs) embarking on a mass delusion uh, that they hope to propagate within the community. (laughs) So let's see uh, if that's going to work out for them. Let's. Mrs. Pigman hangs up laundry with the serene face of somebody who hasn't seen Edith in a while. (laughs) When who should show up but Edith with Rosamond in tow? Oh my god. Uh, she introduces them to the stone-faced Mrs. Pigman. Uh, Rosamond apologizes for dropping in. Marigold's sitting there scratching her face in a non-rocking she horse. She looks just like Reagan in The Exorcist, <laughs> but like before she gets fully transformed by that deep, like more like Reagan in the like the you know the galloping bed peeing on the floor in front of those astronauts <laughs> portion of the movie. Right. It's <laughs> boy describing that movie sure sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? <laughs> Miracle just stands there and says, you're going to die up there. (laughs) Mrs. Pickman says, yes, my dear. (laughs) I've taught you well. (laughs) Thank God those Swiss people contacted us before it was too late. Uh, Rosamond, despite all this, says that Marigold is very sweet. Pigman comes out to see what's up. He's like putting on his suspenders or something as he walks out. It's his laying down the law suspenders. Yeah. And Rosamond says that they have to go. She tells Marigold to remember your your friend, Rosamond. This is like, oh my God. So they're like, the, they're like uh, Jasper and Horace in 101 Dalmatians. <laughs> Completely ill-suited to the task <laughs> at hand. Yes, but Marigold saves the situation uh, as, as soon as Rosamond says that, immediately bursting into tears. <laughs> Just exactly what I would do if Rosamond ever talked to me. <laughs> so Edith and Rosamond leave, and Mrs. Pigman starts yelling at Pigman, says she knew that this would happen. Marigold is going to be poked and prodded by every guest at the big house, and it's all his fault. And she is entirely correct. Yeah, and how are they supposed to practice family nudity with all these people poking around? <laughs> When they went we, on holiday in Germany for no reason. When will we be able to live like the pigs? <laughs> Carson pulls Mrs. Hughes aside in the hallway downstairs and says he resents being called out of the game. And he says that he lives in the world of today just like the king, Mr. Sergeant, and Mr. Kipling, which is possibly the funniest <laughs> joke that has ever been on this show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, referring naturally to John Singer Sargent yes. uh, and Rudyard Kipling, yeah. he of Ricky Tiki Tavi fame. Right. Both of whom passed their prime. Yeah. Also, Team Nagini. <laughs> uh, Mosley comes in to say that Officer Bummer is there with a man from London. Uh, so this is still happening. Yep. So up in Mary's room, Anna says that the five O is there. And Mary wants to know what they want. Anna says uh, she doesn't know. It doesn't make any sense. 
Mary puts down the letter she was reading, says that she wants to catch the 10 o'clock train for Blake Town. Team Blake! Anna asks if she'll be seeing Gillian. Gilly! <laughs> and... <laughs> And Mary's like, uh, who? <laughs> <laughs> no, and Anna asked her, so you haven't changed your mind yet? I just like the idea that Anna's been, like, writing Mr. and Mrs. Gilly <laughs> in a notebook somewhere, hoping that Mary will see the error of her whore's ways. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I guess, you know, maybe Anna liked him. She's kind of heavily involved in who she ends up maybe with. Maybe it's some kind of weird transference, like, after Mr. Green. Oh, like, wow. I'm not even sure what the ins and outs of that would be. We better ask Dr. Clarkson since he's such an astute <laughs> judge of the human character. Right. Uh, so anyway, yeah, they head down. In some random street, and this is a really weird edit. Yeah. So this may be a place where a scene has been cut. Right. Uh, but Branson is apparently breaking up with the homely liberal, even though they were never really together. Right. But he says that she forced him into it. She says that she's, you know, she's confused. She's like, is it because it's a choice between them and me? And he's like, yeah, dude. He says his wife and child are part of the family that she hates. And she asks if, you know, she's very confused, actually. She's right. like, don't you hate them also? Mm-hmm. And he says no. And he doesn't think in black and white terms anymore because of Stockholm Syndrome. Right. I only think in white and white terms. <laughs> anyway, she says she does. Uh, which I doubt mm-hmm. because again, I feel that going up there for dinner so many times is at least 50 shades of gray. Right. I mean, at least if you're going to do it, wear some like defiantly crappy clothes or something like yeah, that. Yeah, man. You know? Go dress as like a ragged bone lady. <laughs> make a stink. <laughs> like literally make a stink. Poop in the corner. <laughs> do something useful. <laughs> He says he's glad he's not the only socialist left, prompting me to yell at the screen, you are not a socialist anymore. Right. Uh, but they should call it a day, which I guess is the, I'm just not that into you of 1924. <laughs> so it would seem, yeah. So he's called it a day <laughs> by Mari Stopes. <laughs> uh, he drives off and we are left wondering what, where did they come from? Right, because she's going? walking along in the rain. So I guess Branson was driving along. He's like, oh, hey, there's that girl I wanted to break up with. Hey, hey, over here. <laughs> he could have just not called her anymore or talked to her. He could have had Rose break up with her. I bet Rose is a great proxy breakup. I bet you're right. Yep. I bet you that, uh, you know, old uh, Prince, what's his name? <laughs> Albert? Who was the one with Wallace Simpson? Uh... Edward. Edward the Eighth. Right. Okay. Yeah. I bet he was like, uh, hey, Rose, remember that time that your whole family saved me from certain, you know, Something. disrespect? <laughs> like, what are you going to do? It's the divine right of kings. <laughs> but uh, can you break up with uh, England uh, for me? Mrs. Dudley Ward? <laughs> like, I know she's already married to another guy, but like, I just make sure we're clear. <laughs> going to hook up with this, uh, this lady. <laughs> right. She's also married. I've just, you know, I got to type. <laughs> <laughs> true mary tells mr viner who is the london policeman that she doesn't know what else to add to her story she describes how she was rushing home to get to this church fate which is where gilly told her about green's death and she told anna viner asks if uh, anna was surprised and she says she was more it was more of a shock and viner's like oh really no like i on it i feel Remember that book, The City in the City by China <laughs> Mievi? Yeah, I do. 
it's like that i feel like <laughs> i feel like the police in this and the other people are in two completely different narratives yeah and like the fact that they're interacting at all is just a weird violation of it, everything that's right it's a breach anyway mary gets up to go and officer bummer asks if she knows where anna was in london she says well she will just have she doesn't but she just have to ask her and he also asks if she has any reason to believe that bates was any farther south than york and she says no these police never question anybody by themselves that's true lord grantham's in there with mary and then Mm -hmm. later we'll see mrs hughes is in there with anna and i'm like, is this how policing was done uh you know maybe i guess we ought to do a repeats history on policing of the era yeah which seems like it might be challenging but you know it'd be worth doing it's also a very challenging like time to look these things up right because nothing really interesting was happening (laughs) yeah but i mean i could see it being sort of like a criminal evidence thing you know that there's a uh, you know sort of multiple witnesses to back up who said what but i don't know it just seems weird well, i mean like you know now you're only supposed to question somebody with a lawyer present so yeah. this could be oh, a, that's true yeah that would be that kind of thing all right anyway down at the dower house isabel and the dowager are doing a jigsaw puzzle uh, which were popularized in the late 18th century fyi all right and they did not start being made of cardboard until uh, cardboard became more profitable than wood mm. uh, they oh. were also very popular during the great depression as they were a renewable source of entertainment that is good man those wood jigsaw puzzles are so much better cardboard's always kind of bunk well you cannot you know you can really uh jam things anywhere you want <laughs> right Isabel uh, is saying, you know, she's always taking luncheon off the Dowager Countess. And I'm like, uh, you should. She's richer than you. Absolutely. The Dowager Countess says Potter, who is her cook, likes having people to cook for. And Spratt needs to keep busy. Apparently, they both think that her maid, uh, Collins, is on the way out. Isabel is worried that she's dying. And the Dowager's like, no, she's going to leave, you twit. (laughs) The maid keeps saying that her mother is infirm. uh, But the Dowager Countess says that she herself is infirm. Uh, and then Isabel snarks that she's about as infirm as Windsor Castle. Right. Which is a solid point. Yeah. Uh, still, the Dowager says Spratt likes things just so, and he thinks that this particular maid uh, is under his control. Isabel says she's never had that problem because she's never had a lady's maid. Right. Which I'm little, like, how'd you get your corsets on, bitch? You know, hashtag humble brag. Yeah. Uh, the Dowager asks then if she's going to come to luncheon on Thursday. Isabel says yes, that Dr. Clarkson will enjoy a chance to get to know Lord Merton as a person, mm-hmm. which I doubt. <laughs> Uh, the Dowager remembers that she's heard from Shrimpy about the Princess Kiragan. He's on her trail. The game's afoot. <laughs> Isabel is very pleased. Uh, he thinks she may be in Wan Kai, Wan Kai? Chai. Wan Chai, working as a nurse. And, uh, Isabel says it's better than it might have been. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. She's not a prostitute. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Dowager isn't super thrilled about this, and she's not gonna tell Prince Kiragan until Shrimpy's sure that he's found her, and it must be handled carefully. Yeah. Isabel's like, I know what you want to handle carefully. You want to handle Karagan's prince. <laughs> Officer Bummer quizzes Anna and asks why it is that Carson concealed the fact that she had been in London. And it's like, did you not listen to what he said? Like, why would he know? Right. He wasn't there. Yeah. And they don't have like a log. Right. And so, and indeed, Anna says that he must have just forgot. Officer Bummer thinks that it must be a big deal for a servant to go to London, but you says, no, not for a lady's maid. Uh, in fact, she is going the next day with mm-hmm. Mary. Finer asks Anna if she liked green. She says yes. He says, well, your husband didn't. And she says, no accounting for taste. 
Viner then says to Anna not to go anywhere. Uh, you know, go ahead on this London trip that she was planned, but in general, to stay available for the police. <sighs> I'm so tired of this. Well, yeah. So, next scene. I'd also like to point out All right. that O'Brien was right about letting Bates into this household. <laughs> that is an excellent like, point. I'm not saying that he's personally responsible, but, you know, murder prison and the attendant police were only introduced because of his ex-wife situation. That's true. It's, and it's it's an infection that spread to the entire family. Yeah. Look just, what's happened. We've got a wedlock baby. Mary's just <laughs> having sex willy-nilly. <laughs> Isabel's going to marry Lord Merton. Up is down. Down is up. Cats and dogs living with pigs. Collins is leaving. Oh, my God. <laughs> not Collins. I just hope that, you know, O'Brien's over there in India being like, hey, hey, hey. Hanging out with Susan. Although they really liked each other. Yeah, that's true. They're the two most disagreeable people who've ever been on this show. No, they're probably having a great time bittering it up over there. (laughs) Plotting revenge against various people. (laughs) Carson asks in the dining room uh, of Lord Grantham when he can lay the table, which Lord Grantham has papers spread out everywhere. Lord Grantham says the police have taken over the library, but he is trying to research builders. Uh, and it's apparently a task beyond their ordinary maintenance team. We assume he's referring to the project of building in uh, Potter's Corner or whatever. <laughs> uh, Pitt's Landing? Bedford Falls? We haven't been called that for years. <laughs> uh, okay, I don't remember what that place was called. Pip's Corner. Pip's Corner. Yes. I knew it was a P. <laughs> See, I'm only reasonably incompetent. <laughs> Uh, That's he says motto. he's found an outfit that he likes. They're based in Thursk and they're growing every day. And he says that uh, fortunes will be made in building over the next few years. And Carson's Carson sense gets <laughs> activated. Uh, perhaps this is information he can use. Right. Not in the game, am I? Sometimes things get casually mentioned to me. <laughs> Although I can only think that uh, this firm is called We Steal Your Money, Inc. <laughs> like, if Lord Grantham is picking it, come on, man. Like, they can't actually be any good. Right. He's going to wake up in a tub of ice with his kidney missing. No, call the doctor immediately. Also, all those houses just fell down. <laughs> Rose leaves a cake shop in York carrying some cakes. And I think the Russians were like walking ahead of her. Possibly. I thought I saw a spectacular knoff <laughs> to kiss. <laughs> right. Uh, but in any case, they move on and then some guy offers to hold her bags while she opens her umbrella and then insists on continuing carrying the bags for her. Uh, and he's like, boy, you, uh, you sure love cake, eh, fatty? Um, he doesn't. Aww. He's very, no. He's, he's Aww, <laughs> that was mean. It was mean, and he wasn't that way at all. No, he wasn't. He's he very just, nice. He just made a little joke about how she has quite a sweet tooth, and she says that it's for these Russians. Uh, he says that, uh, yeah, he also loves cake. And then they're frightened by some thunder, so they scurry. <laughs> Which it didn't really even sound like thunder. It sounded like a car backfiring and then falling over. Right. So they scurry under some Presumably shelter. Presumably Neem forgot to pay for the thunder effects, and it's just him banging on a cookie sheet. <laughs> no, it's not him. It's Alistair Bruce. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> Oracle. <laughs> yes. I brought the brains. <laughs> Why do you keep doing that? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god 
So she asks this guy if he knows much about the Russian refugees. He says nobody feels sorry for them. And then he says that really he ought to take more of an interest because he's part Russian himself. And she says, oh, well, you should come have tea with us sometime, you cutie. And uh, that they should introduce themselves to each other, even though that feels weird. And he is Atticus Aldridge. She's like, well, that doesn't sound very Russian. He says, well, of course, we weren't called Aldridge back then. And then they laugh and scamper along in the rain. Yeah, you know what they were called? What? Fully! Fully Moskowitz! (laughs) That's what you think everybody's called. Only Russian immigrants! (laughs) God, I'm not totally stupid. Yes. Only part stupid. Yeah. This is a very meet-cute rom-com. They're really the meat. Like, honestly, this is like a breath of fresh air in this (laughs) show at this point. I'm like, oh my god, something good might happen to someone. (laughs) Fantastic. Don't have sex again, Rose! (laughs) 500 days of York. I don't know. <laughs> no, 500 days of Atticus. <laughs> In the kitchen, Carson tells Mrs. Patmore he has a solution to her problem, which I wish he would have said, I have a more <laughs> permanent solution to your problem. I mean, he's in the right register. He is in the right <laughs> register. All I'm saying, if somebody in Britain doesn't cast uh, Jim What's-His-Fuzz, uh, Carter? Yes. Yeah. If Jim Carter doesn't play Caiaphas in a revival of Jesus Christ Superstar before he dies, that is a missed opportunity. Right. Take a note, Britain. Uh, mainly Cameron McIntosh. <laughs> anyway, he tells Mrs. Patmore that she should invest in the building trade, specifically uh, Caractacus Pots, <laughs> or like <laughs> yeah, whatever was... the firm was that Lord Grantham liked. Sure. Mrs. Patmore flatters his awareness, and then she asks the very excellent question, uh, have they gone public and can I invest in shares? Carson just splutters and said, well, you'll have to make inquiries. Uh, the homely liberal shows up, and Carson puffs out his chest and wonders what she's doing here, yeah. as she has been expressly forbidden <laughs> from reentering this house. Right. Um, she says she's just there to say goodbye. Daisy is adorable in this yes. scene because she's spitting mad. She is. She angrily explains that the homely liberals leaving the school and the village because Mr. Branson won't stand up to, lord- to his lordship. Yeah. And Carson says that Daisy is nudging impertinence, <laughs> which would be a great name for an indie band. Yes, it would. Uh, it would sound a lot like the Neutral Milk Hotel, but like <laughs> more so. Oh, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. more impertinent. Uh, Mrs. Patmore asks the homely liberal, uh, what's up? And she says it's not quite how Daisy recounted it. She says she got an offer from a grammar school in Lancashire, which is a step up from where she is at the village school. Mm-hmm. Daisy says also it has to be because every time she comes to the house, she gets insulted. Yeah. And then Carson basically says in front of the homely liberal that she only gets what she deserves. Yeah. So uh, quit victim blaming. <laughs> The homely liberal asks... We've been blaming her the whole time, too, I we should have, point yeah. out. That's actually true. <laughs> uh, for some reason, I just don't like it when Carson does it. <laughs> well, yeah, that's fair. Uh, the homely liberal asks Mrs. Patmore not to let Daisy quit her studies. Mrs. Hughes walks in and asks, uh, what the fuck is going on in this kitchen? Uh, Mrs. Patmore says all sorts and explains what's happening. Carson's like, uh, I'm sick of all this. I'm leaving. The homely liberal says, I also am sick of this. Goodbye and good luck. Yeah. In some hall, Thomas asks Hughes what's up with all these cops everywhere all the time and why they're questioning the Bateses. And she says, well, she supposes he should ask Mr. Viner. And he says that he might, and he might have something to tell him. She tells him not to make trouble and also asks if he's well because he looks like he could use a lie down. Uh, he looks like he could use perhaps uh, more than that. Right. 
Uh, he may well be a zombie yeah. at this point. I was going to say, he looks like he's had a lie down in the grave he's like, and returned. No, I'm just uh, practicing for a walk-on role on The Walking Dead. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing much better than we are. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> I know. Uh, yes. So great. Once again, great use of Rob. Uh, what's his name's talents? Came your jolly. <laughs> uh, I think you're having a stroke. <laughs> do you smell toast? I was trying to do a portmanteau of his own name, which is challenging. Uh, Kames. Yeah, I guess. Jollier. Jollier. Yeah. Up in their room, uh, Lord Grantham asks McGee who called. Uh, I guess that happened. Right. She says, Bricker. And he's like, boo. <laughs> uh, but she says that Bricker wants to photograph the Della Francesca for a book. And Lord Grantham will be in Sheffield, uh, which is handy since they hate each other. Yeah. Lord Grantham points out that Mary's in London. And McGee's like, yeah, so. Irrelevant. That bitch is always in London. <laughs> yeah. And he. <laughs> she's she's in London with her boyfriend. Why can't I be here with mine? Exactly. Uh, Lord Grantham lies that he doesn't dislike Bricker. <laughs> he just thinks that this business is dragging on. And I'm like, uh, this is typically how this kind of thing goes. Yeah. But McGee says that it's an honor and for their painting to appear in the book, it will increase the painting's value. And Lord Grantham says he's not forbidding her from inviting him. And McGee's like, good, I already have. Also, that's not what I was asking you. Yeah. Uh, no, she's very like, snippy with him mm-hmm. in this and i mean you know justifiably with good cause. yes he's, he's been uh very unpleasant yeah toward her daisy hisses branson over to one of the doors to the servants quarters or area of yeah. the house uh and he asks like what's up she says that he is making a mistake with the homely liberal she says that she is clever and kind so why would he turn is his back on her kind or i guess she's clever she's well and she's kind of daisy that's true which you know. in this house yeah, few yeah. and far between. Right, she says that she knows the homely liberal loves him. She can tell whenever she talks about him, and that the homely liberal is leaving tomorrow, which Branson did not know. Mm-hmm. She says that Branson is a Branson, not a Crawley, and that we're the future and they're the past. And then Carson is like, "What's going on over here?" And Branson's like, "Oh, I I held Daisy up," which is very nice of him. Yes, it is. That's a nice thing Branson did, and we endorse that action. Absolutely. At dinner, in what is possibly the longest dinner scene ever, <laughs> Rose asks if anybody's heard of an Atticus Eldridge, and Rosamond says he sounds like a Mrs. Humphrey Ward character. Uh, incidentally, Rosamond would totally read Mrs. Humphrey Ward because she was an author of uh, Victorian novels ah. uh, that reinforced Victorian values. She also was the head of the Anti-Suffrage Women's League. <laughs> but she also was really committed to providing equal education opportunity for everybody. Hmm. And it always cracks me up yeah. when conservatives support that kind of thing because I'm like, you know that the key to liberalism is learning to read, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, Rose yep. says that Atticus's father has been made Lord Cinderby, and Lord Grantham remembers that happening. He says that the locals uh, were furious, but he can't remember why, possibly because they're new money. And then Rose says that they bought Canningford Grange. The Dowager is shocked. She didn't realize the Wheelers had sold. Rose thinks that the family are bankers and says the son's nice. Mary raises her eyebrows, and Rose says, nothing like that. Right, because it's not like she's the only person in this room with a known history of sexual activity. Right. 
Uh, the Dowager Countess asks if Barrow is all right, if Carson has been overworking him. Uh, Barrow says no, because in case you haven't noticed, no one ever does anything on this show anymore. <laughs> right. The fact that the house hasn't just completely turned into Miss Havisham's or Grey Gardens is a complete coincidence. He only ever works Mosley, and only then for comical effect. <laughs> Uh, Mary says that it's very daring for the Lord Lieutenant to give a cocktail party. This was very confusing. Right. So there's two parties, y'all. Yes. It took us much later in the episode <laughs> to realize what was going on. Right. Uh, so there's the dinner in Sheffield, and then the Lord Lieutenant is giving his uh, cocktail party. Yeah, And yeah. the Lord Lieutenant is Lord Grantham. Right. So there's the dinner on Thursday in Sheffield, then the cocktail party uh, in Grantham. Right. So... If yeah, we were quite confused, but that's what's going on. So you know, the more you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the dowager agrees that it's uh, very you know daring. Uh, it is rather fast. <laughs> yeah. She says, McGee says she much prefers a cocktail party because you only have to stay for forty minutes, and it's much <laughs> better than spending seven courses between a deaf landowner and a deaf general. <laughs> Edith asks if Lord Grantham cares what other people think, and he says, uh, "Yeah, oh, right." He like- says. I accept change. Uh, but he doesn't want to put everyone's backs up by embracing it wholeheartedly. Branson asks why the rituals and the clothes matter. The Dowager Countess says it keeps them from being wild men of Borneo, which seems like a bit of a stretch. Yeah, well. Uh, but it, well, you know, with these naturists moving in, who can <laughs> that's say? A, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, but Isabel says that once they're controlled by tradition, the traditions have outlived their usefulness and literally everyone except Branson rolls their eyes. <laughs> Edith gets very uh, cranky and right. says that there's more important things than whether Carson's serving cocktails. Mary asks why Carson's in the line of fire. <laughs> Edith suddenly has a headache and leaves. Lord Grantham wants to know what that was about. And McGee asks Rosamond if anything was bothering Edith. Uh, but Rosamond says she's just tired and she'll be fit as a flea tomorrow. And I'm like, how fit are fleas? Well, I guess they're pretty flit. I mean, I guess they jump a lot. Right. And pretty far. Which is more than Edith. Uh, the say. Dowager Countess has uh activated her own you know countess sense <laughs> right she smells a flea yeah or more accurately a pig <laughs> edith a uh, patmore brings a tray into hughes's parlor and hughes is like oh i'll get carson but patmore says wait and she asks hughes what she thinks about this firm that carson's recommended because she is nervous about it she doesn't want to put her money into something she doesn't understand hughes is like so why did you ask carson then and patmore's like i don't know i suppose it's because he's a man hughes does not think that that is a good reason nor do i right patmore agrees but now she's worried about hurting uh, carson's feelings which is still not a good reason and Hugh says that she wishes men worried about women's feelings a quarter as much as we worry about theirs. Which is still a contemporary issue. And has Mrs. Hughes ever said anything on the subject of suffrage? That's a good question. I don't think she has. I don't think so, but I'm not certain that she hasn't. Because I know it's come She may uh, have said something when Sybil was around in the first series. Right. Potentially. Potentially, but I'm just not well, sure. Well, because remember Anna said, because there was that discussion, and yeah. she said that she thinks... Those women are very brave. Right, right. And that was all she would say on the subject. Because I could see Hughes not being super into the idea of suffrage just because she's older and all she's ever known is mm-hmm. non-suffrage. You know, I don't know that she would necessarily avoid the principle. Right. But I mean, and this this line of talk makes me wonder if she's practicing uh, what I would call my big fat Greek wedding feminism. <laughs> 
Uh, well, because you remember when uh, Lainey Kazan is talking to... You've seen that movie, right? I've seen it, but I don't okay. remember it well. So I saw it a bunch of times because, yeah. you know, it was the early aughts and that's what we did then. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and so she's talking to Neo Vardalos and she is saying, uh, it's the day of the wedding and she's giving uh-huh. her like marital advice. Uh-huh. And she's saying that the man is the head of the family, but the woman is the neck. So the woman is the real power. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that might be more Mrs. Hughes's line. Yeah, I can see that. Um, and she's just irritated that the, you know, the way women deal with things isn't respected. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't know. I'm curious. Cousins, if you remember if she said anything on the record, right. that would be great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of you have watched this show more than we have. Which is saying In all something. honesty. Um, or at least remember it better. I feel like I feel like we've watched it a lot, and I don't know why. Well, I think it's because we watch it with an eye toward doing this. Yeah, that's and true. And we watch it, you know, several times in a close succession. You yeah. Know, versus going back and rewatching an entire that's season true. as a whole. If, if we'd watched the whole thing three times in order, as opposed to each one three times. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Because then you have that continuity. Yeah. Yeah. Look behind the curtain. <laughs> that is what we said. <laughs> Mary's walking upstairs with Branson and says he's very thoughtful. He says he's on the brink of a decision and she says that he, well, he says he's on the brink of a decision and he hopes it's the right one. And then she says he's got to make the right choice for him and not the family. And, uh, he says that she is nicer than people think. And she says, not always. Yeah. And that is why we like her. <laughs> so Branson, don't go encouraging her to start being nice. Right. Come on. That was Sybil's job and she's dead. <laughs> Rosamond sits with the Dowager Countess in a garden, and she's resenting being questioned on her motives for coming. It's as if she's not welcome. Uh, she's not. Right. Remember when she used to steal all their produce? <laughs> she's probably still doing it. I had forgotten that. Yeah, right? Yeah. I knew they didn't like her, but I'd forgotten the produce was involved. Also, her face is like a hatchet. <laughs> Dowager's like, listen, what's up with Edith? And Rosamond's like, bah, 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 and then cuts off Rosamond and says that this isn't a committee of the Women's Institute. Rosamond says, I'm afraid you've read somewhere that rudeness in old age is amusing, but it, you know, but it isn't or whatever. Uh, which I thought was a nice line. Well, you know, she's starting to inherit some of her mother's, uh, biting wit yeah. as she herself ages. Yeah. The Dowager says that she knows it's about the child and that they both know that Rosamond is not leaving until the Dowager knows the truth. So should I make up a bed for you or are you going to tell me? And we don't find out what she says because this is written by Julian Fellows. <laughs> uh, the pig man is following some sheep. That is a Renaissance uh, for, man. Yeah, for a ch- just a change of pace, you know? <laughs> uh, Edith. I wonder what pigs would think of sheep. <laughs> <laughs> What if I were a sheep man? <laughs> uh, Edith looms up I know. creepily. I know. She's like she, peers no, she's through She's like behind a... this like cutout in a stone wall. And I'm like, you're doing a terrible job at this. Hello. She says she has to see Marigold. Uh, no, you don't. No. And the pig man says it was a mistake to bring her aunt. Mrs. Pigman thinks that Edith wants Marigold as a plaything. Edith says, why would she think that? Uh, displaying no self-awareness. <laughs> yeah. Or attention to context like, whatsoever. Uh, counter question. Why would she think anything else? Yeah. 
that was your cover story was that Edith would use Ros- Marigold as a plaything. Yeah. Like that was the story that you came up with. Anyway. The pigman says if Edith keeps coming, they'll move and take Marigold with them. Edith says that she won't allow it. And the pigman asks if he should drop the baby off in the library. <laughs> and Edith is like, oh, that seems like a great idea, actually. <laughs> right. Uh, anyway, he sees no way around it. Edith leaves and the pigman hurls some straw angrily, probably mad at his wife and not himself for concocting this stupid plan. Yeah. At the Dower House, they're having this luncheon. Clarkson says that people think that that the countryside is so healthy, but actually it's not, uh, and the water isn't very good. Murdy's like, oh, are you referring to iodine deficiency? And supposes that they must get a lot of goiters. Ah, goiters. (laughs) Right. Clarkson's like, "Uh, yeah, that's true. Murdy says that it's so sad that so few people know about iodine and suffer from something where the remedy is so widely known. Clarkson asks if he studied it. Murdy says no, he's just read about it, but wishes he had studied. Spratt then comes in and announces luncheon in a more Spratt-like voice than usual. Uh, The dowager tells him to cheer up and explains to Isabel that yes, uh, the maid quit. Isabel asks Spratt if he likes change for some reason. He says that he detests it. The Dowager says that they all do, but they must learn to live with it. Murdy says that actually, he does like change. He thinks it's exciting. Yes. And he sounds exactly like Isabel. And I think he's trying to single white female her into marrying. (laughs) Well, and he points out that most of our, you know, so-called ancient customs and traditions were just invented by the Victorians. And Isabel is like, you are so right. (laughs) So Clarkson hangs back a step with the Dowager and says, it seems clear that Isabel and Murdy are suited, whether the two of them like it or not. And that Murdy's interest in medicine does seem legitimate. And the Dowager reluctantly agrees with him. Um, also, like, remember when, like, Dr. Clarkson had a crush on Isabel and that just comes up whenever, like, they feel like it? Yes, I do. Uh, also, I can't see why Isabel would have to give up any kind of work, although she doesn't seem like she's doing much. Right. Even for Greta and her biscuit. I mean, I think what I would say is... I assume that if she marries Murdy, she will have more social obligations because she'll be of, you know, a position in the county. Right. And will have to do more things, you know, to keep that up. Uh, you but know. that's all meddling. Right. That's no, she, the whole thing is meddling. She can fix the flower rota at the church. She sure can. Yeah. She can do all that stuff. But, you know. Uh, also, spinoff idea, who will marry Murdy? <laughs> have I already said that? I don't think so. Oh, great. I hope not because I think it's real funny. <laughs> Boot room! The Myrtler. <laughs> uh, Bates is going to dress Lord Grantham in his uniform and then uh, shuffle off to Sheffield. Hey. And then asks Anna what Viner wanted. She says she's not sure. He asked why she... She says that Viner asked why she liked Green and why Green didn't like Bates, and she told him that she didn't know. Bates then uh, foolishly promises Anna that nothing bad will ever happen to her again, because that's totally a thing that people can promise. Right. And uh, they, he says, no, they will sit around the fire surrounded by their children and he'll make certain she's safe because his limp is totally gone. Right. It is a fiddle. And this is, this is not at all concerning or like disturbing. No, no, definitely yeah. not. Uh, Anna asks if he really believes that. He says, trust me, if you're ever in danger again, I will kill you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she says she's not sure how many children she wants. They laugh. He kisses her forehead. Uh, let's move on. Yeah. Because the thought of them having kids leads to other uncomfortable thoughts. (laughs) Homely liberal is packing her stuff in a car to leave. And Branson arrives. She's like, oh, you almost missed me. He says, yeah, well, you didn't tell me you were leaving. And says that Daisy told him. And she says, oh, my champion. Which, all right. 
Uh, he says that the school will miss her, and she says maybe. She doesn't really think the school liked her. Uh, I don't like her, so that seems totally plausible. Right. But Branson says that he will miss her. The homely liberal says that she loved Branson and could have loved him more if he'd let her. He says that he is glad that they met. She has reminded him of who he is, and he won't forget that. Uh, it's really, I... I just don't buy that she loved him. I don't I buy that buy she loved him. I will buy that she liked him. I will buy that she was physically attracted to him. Mm-hmm. And maybe she just doesn't know how to differentiate between any of that. Right. But I just don't think she loved him. Yeah. And I also think, I don't think you needed to come and give this, like, crappy send-off to the homely liberal. Like, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it's these sort of, like, cliche, I don't really like you, but I don't want you to feel bad things, but... I don't know what he's accomplishing here. Anyway. So he kisses her. She says she wishes that she could have met him before he met them. Uh, and he wouldn't want that because Sybil was great. Yeah. And now he has this baby. Right. So shut up. <laughs> yes. Anyway, the driver's like, uh, we got to go, lady. So they go. Uh, and so long and farewell, you homely liberal. Uh, also, she died on the way back to her home planet. <laughs> In the library... McGee asks Bricker if he had a nice journey. He says that he did. Lord Grantham comes down in his uniform with Isis. Bricker greets him, and then Lord Grantham announces that he's heading to Sheffield, but we'll see him tomorrow. He kisses McGee goodbye, and Bates puts a weird cape on him. <laughs> yes, he does. Uh, Bricker says... This is my car cape or my train cape? Uh, oh, this isn't the library. This is the foyer. Oh, you're right. I don't know why I said that. Uh, Bricker says he's finding Downton quite homelike, and McGee says, good, as long as you behave. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh, down in the Russian basement of that church, Atticus comes up to Rose, who is startled, as she is every time somebody comes into that basement. Uh, she asks if he's looking for cake, uh, but he says no, he just wanted to see her before he goes off to London, where he will be starting a new job at a bank. Rose introduces Atticus to Prince Karagin and to Spektalnikov. Karagin corrects her and says, I am Mr. Karagin here. He's Mr. Karagin in Russia. No, he's Comrade Karagin. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Actually, probably more likely he's dead Karagin. (laughs) Right. Enemy of the state Karagin. Spektalnikov is, uh, for some reason, talking about the princess, says that what good is it? Even if they find her, there will still be refugees. And Rose is like, hey, Atticus' family was Russian, and now they're fine. And Spektalnikov asks where his family is from, and Atticus is making, like, ixnay on the usheray faces behind her, but Rose doesn't notice. Uh, She says that he is from Odessa. His great-grandfather came over in 1859, and the rest in, and then Spektalnikov jumps in and says, 1871. And Rose is like, oh, how clever of you. But Spektalnikov is pissed. He says that Atticus is not Russian. And Rose is like, well, yeah, obviously he's not Russian now. <laughs> and Spektalnikov is like, he wasn't Russian then! And he storms out. Also, he wasn't born then. Well, right. Karagin apologizes and goes after Spektalnikov, saying calming things in Russian. I think he's saying, Nikolai, she's going to stop bringing us cake. (laughs) Rose is like, what happened? And Atticus explains that his family is, uh, Jewish. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Right. Rose asks how Spektalnikov knew, and it's because there were pogroms that drove the Jews out of Odessa in those two specific years. Rose asks why it matters. Yes, my last lover was a black man. (laughs) I don't care about anything. Right. Uh, Atticus laughs, as he should. Some of my favorite ex-lovers were different races and religions. (laughs) 
some of oh um, uh, and he asks rose if he can give her dinner in london and rose is like oh we'll have to see but she's clearly means yes oh yes which brings us to the second of our recurring segments tom repeats history with our very own emigre expert tom welcome tom thank you uh so this one's kind of brief because i'm talking about pogroms the articles on Wikipedia weren't too detailed, and I just don't have it in me to research more detail about it. That's fair. They're very upsetting. Right. So pogroms, as you probably know, it's a, you know, a riot aimed at the either massacre or expulsion of Jews in a particular area. Um, so it's a Russian term or kind of uh, Yiddish via Russian, and that's where it's most commonly associated, and particularly in the period uh, in the 19th century, and it was in the Pale of Settlement. Uh, and that was a region that Russia conquered between 1791 and 1835. And it basically went from kind of parts of Western Russia through Poland and then from the Baltic Sea down to the Black Sea. So that's uh, Ukraine, where Odessa is. Uh, and what's special about that is that's the only area the Jews were allowed to live in the Russian Empire, uh, you know, with certain special cases. And with that in that area, they weren't allowed to live in most cities, which is why the, the shtetls, the small Jewish mm-hmm. villages, developed because that was the only place they were allowed to live. And in fact, the only reason they were allowed to live in the Pale of Settlement starting in 1791 uh, was because they had made failed several times to expel Jews entirely, as, of course, England had done in the past, Spain had done in the past. And, and I bring that up just because pogroms is a Russian word, and they did have a big cluster of them in the 19th century, but it's a thousand-year-old Europe-wide tradition. I mean, going back to the First Crusades... I think, you know, by tradition you mean method of terrorism. Right. I mean, absolutely. But just to say that this is something that happened in Russia in the 19th century, mm-hmm. or Germany in the 30s and 40s, or anything else, I mean, it goes back to, you know... As, as long as we have history, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, when they would have the Crusades, it happened on multiple occasions that people who were gathering for a crusade was like, hey, instead of going all the way to the Holy Land, why don't we just kill any Jews in the area? And the church would usually try to stop them, but they usually failed. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is just so, you know, I, I just bring that up so that we don't wall this off as something that other people did. Yeah. That's all. I feel strongly. Uh, as you should. Yeah. I mean, it's not like America has a great track record. Right. Absolutely. Just because you stop short of uh, genocide (laughs) doesn't mean that you're doing a great job of, you know, truly making this country a melting pot. Yeah. Uh, So in Odessa, pogroms took place in uh, 1821, 1859, 1871, 1881, 1886, um, and because basically what it was, Jews were, you know, among the sort of supporters of the liberal socialist, you know, whole side of things. Yeah. And so. Oh, when- you mean the side of things that said, hey, <laughs> don't kill the Jews, maybe? <laughs> right. They were in favor of that. Uh, so when there was all this upheaval, again, with the battleship Potemkin arriving and everything like that. Uh, Jews tended to get blamed by the, you know, right-wing side of things mm-hmm. as being the troublemakers, as has often been the case. Uh, and continues to this day. Right. 
Though actually in the earlier part of the 19th century, the pogroms in Odessa were largely led by Greeks rather than Russians. Uh, Greeks were a large ethnic minority in Odessa as the Jews were, and they, they tended to be competing in the same uh, areas of business. So there was a large economic component as well as the, the racial component to it. Just like in season two of The Wire. <laughs> Right. So, for example, the uh, 1821 program was kind of an offshoot of the Greek War for Independence that was going on at the time. The Greeks accused the Jews in the city of supporting the Ottomans and the Turks mm-hmm. against Greek independence. Uh, and then in 1859, the one that Atticus's great-grandfather came over from... Uh, which is actually sometimes considered the first pogrom in Russia. There's no clear definition. I don't know why the 1821 doesn't count or whatever, but anyway. Um, it took place on Easter, I presume Orthodox Easter, and it was led by Greeks, primarily sailors, because Greeks had had their business heavily disrupted by the Crimean War that had just taken mm-hmm. place, and the Jewish merchants had kind of moved in to those areas that the Greeks had been forced to vacate. So that was sort of the the source of a lot of the resentment that was going on at the time. So it just took a spark for everybody to be like, this is a great opportunity to take the, all the Jews' stuff. Mm-hmm. And moreover, the the local press and the local government were heavily aligned with the Greek community. So, for example, in the, the newspapers at the time, they all portrayed that pogrom as just sort of this accidental fight that kind of broke out that nobody caused it. It just sort of happened, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Jews were never able to obtain political power. They were like, hashtag not all Gentiles. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, to, to match their share of the population or their share of the economy. So at one point they were, uh, 35% of the population in Odessa, but out of 3,500 employee, government employees in the town, there were only 71 that were Jewish. So, you know, that's that's just part of this thing, even though there were a lot of them there. And even though they were crucial to the economic life of the town, they never got any formal power to be able to protect themselves. Wow. What does that remind me of? Well, sure. There you go. Uh, and so by in future pogroms starting in 1871, Russians had started to join in with the Greeks in the, the you know, Jew killing game. Um, and... That one is seen as one of the early sparks for what developed into Zionism. Uh, some people came out of that saying, listen, we're never going to be able to integrate into a Christian community. We need to start thinking of ourselves as having a national identity and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And that, you know, slowly developed over the, over the coming decades. Uh, yeah. And then the 1905 one that we talked about, that was the, the sort of last major one in, in at least in, in Odessa and it was also the most severe. There was uh, hundreds killed in that one. So after that nineteen oh five one, I don't know if you delve into it this deeply, like were there still any Jews living in Russia or did they all just go? I mean there still were slash get killed. Right. I mean there still were because I know there were up to I mean up through the Stalin era. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean I think he well I mean, you know, throughout throughout the Soviet era Jews in Russia were constantly emigrating to Israel. I mean, that's a big, one of the big communities in Israel mm-hmm. is the ones that emigrated from the uh-huh. Soviet Union. And that's the thing about it is it's, it's, you know, despite all the violence and everything like that, it's just not easy to, to eliminate a community of, mm-hmm. of any size. Whatever you subject them to people, because I mean, you have to do what, you know, the Germans did. I mean, you have to make it a totalitarian at all levels throughout your society because if you're just saying uh, we kind of hope all the jews leave then it'll be enforced more strongly one place than another Mm -hmm. people kind of move from place to place do whatever they can to keep 
it together. Well, and like, sorry, not sorry. I keep talking about Fiddler on the Roof. Well, no, no, but, no. Um, I mean, it is, you know, in a lot of ways, it's like the gateway to like learning about this kind of stuff. But if you look at that movie and the arc in that movie, mm-hmm. ah, which I totally want to cover for this, and I have mm-hmm. no idea when, mm-hmm. but it's so good, you guys. If you haven't seen the movie version of Fiddler on the Roof starring Topol and that guy from Starsky and Hutch, right. uh, do it. And I will, I will back this up because I'd always, I feel like I saw a little bit of it when I was a kid or something. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of had this negative opinion of it. Like, not super, but I just didn't think it would be my thing. No, and he was like really mad because it was on PBS one night. Right. And I was like, we are totally watching this right now. Yeah. And he was kind of annoyed, but then like he got, it, it fun, look, it, it came out in the 70s, sort of what I think of as the zenith of filmmaking mm-hmm. and i mean it's just so incredibly good yeah and it's yeah i, I mean, really granted, i was 100 uh, percent. in case you forgot women are property <laughs> right. uh regardless they're very much property but anyway it's very interesting and you see the arc of the law enforcement in that movie because mm-hmm. initially the town that they live in uh, which is a fictional town yeah, yeah. called Anatevka, but it's policed by very empathetic uh russian police mm-hmm and as the, you know, uh, pogrom draws nearer, that empathetic policeman is replaced by a much more vicious group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that's, I mean, it's, it doesn't become totalitarian, but it's like that move toward being more militarized right. and less willing to accept anyone different in your community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and somebody, and I forget who does go to the Holy Land uh, right. at the end. I yeah. wonder, is it Yenta? I forget. Yeah, I don't know, but anyway. yeah, but that again makes sense yeah. according to what so I read. So we'll have to rewatch it yeah. and possibly <laughs> podcast it. Maybe so. Um, great. Yeah, fantastic. So that, that was, was very uh, informative and pressing. <laughs> right, as Tom repeats history <laughs> so often is. It's my trademark. <laughs> it's why I love you. <laughs> yeah. Blake greets Mary at the door of Simpsons, the uh, restaurant that they are dining at. Simpsons on the Strand, as it is apparently now known. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, oh, my gosh. We should totally do a Downton Abbey restaurant tour when we go to London. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we should. I don't know that we can like commit to that right, right now. We, but yeah. P.S. Cousins, we're thinking about coming to <laughs> London at the end of this year. Right. So uh, Nothing's been confirmed nothing's been or finalized confirmed, in any way. But if but... we do, we will definitely be having a meetup for all of our U.K. cousins. Oh, absolutely. So just like, bear that in mind. Oh, heck yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll keep you all posted. Yeah. So he says he's asked a friend and wants Mary to behave. Mary asks why she wouldn't, and it's because... <gasps> it's Miss Lane Fox. Oh, my God. It's Miss Lane Fox. Who is not at all pleased. Oh, no, but she looks stunning. She does. She makes Mary look like a pile of duty. <laughs> uh, both are very startled by this development. Blake is very smug, which I kind of... Oh, he's such a dick. Yeah. I find him because very attractive. Both, she's like, I wasn't expecting to see you. And then there was like, I wasn't expecting to see you. And Blake's no, like, what happily, she, I was expecting. What Mabel Lane Fox actually says is ditto. Oh, right. Because she don't mince words. Right. And Blake says, happily, I was expecting you both. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Mabel Lane Fox asks if they're all supposed to hold hands and take a house by the <laughs> sea. And I'm like, I don't see why that's a problem. Yeah. Uh, why don't you guys just do that? Yeah. Ditch everybody else. We want to see what happens. Yeah. Uh, Watch the sparks fly. <laughs> uh, Blake says he has an idea that may be of mutual advantage to both parties. Uh, so a, a threesome is that what? <laughs> I but with who? Well, you know, 
Downstairs, Baxter tells Thomas that he's poisoning himself, and he says to lay off. Which, is that a phrase that they used at that time? Uh, apparently. <laughs> uh, I think Alistair Bruce would have said something. That's a really good point, actually. Yeah, I think he would have. I bet he gets so mad about Rose flipping people off on Titanic. <laughs> he's like, if I'd been there, Oracle, this never would have stood. Uh, sir, James Cameron called. He said, fuck you. <laughs> oh, why would James Cameron call? <laughs> to he say, would, fuck you. He would tweet. Or email. Yeah, that's true. Or whatever they do in Avatar. <laughs> Fuck you. I'm at the bottom of the ocean. Just <laughs> thought you should know. <laughs> I'm in the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's authentic. So, yeah. A Baxter tells Thomas that he's sweating like a beast. Thomas says that just because she still has a job doesn't mean she can push him around. Sweating like a beast. <laughs> and then Mosley comes by because he forgot the cream. Oh, Molesley. <laughs> right. Always forgetting the cream. I know. <laughs> Someday we'll have cream with our coffee. <laughs> uh, so Thomas heads up and Baxter, or mostly asks if Baxter can tell him the truth now that she's told McGee. She says, do you really want me to? But then Carson's like, hey, Mosley, I want to yell at you. Or whatever. Back at Simpsons, Mabel Lane Fox is rightfully offended at the idea that Blake wants her to take the discarded leavings of Lady Mary Crawley, dust them off, and put them on her own plate. Yeah. Mary says that's not what he meant. The Mabel Lane Fox says, what a relief. Now we can avoid a quarrel. <laughs> Blake says that Mabel Lane Fox loves Gilly. Mabel Lane Fox is like, uh, do I? Mm-hmm. And she says that she was engaged to him, and then he broke it off because Mary crooked her little finger at him, which is like... Yes and no. Right. He also crooked his little gilly at her. He did. So, like, there was a lot of mutual crooking going on here. <laughs> and now Mary's bored with him, and she wants Mabel Lane Fox to dry his tears and keep him occupied. Mary points out correctly yeah. that this was not her idea. I just enjoy how unnerved Mary is by Mabel Lane Fox. Yeah. Like, Mary is used to being queen bitch. Yeah. And now she has meant... Like, the empress bitch. <laughs> I, it's fantastic. Yeah, well, because, like, look, Mary's queen bitch of Yorkshire and can hold her own in London, but Maybelline Fox is queen bitch of London. Yeah, she is not fucking around. Yeah. Uh, Maybelline Fox also says it's not her idea. Blake says that Maybelline Fox is cutting off her nose to spite her face. And then Maybelline Fox is like, Lane Fox out! <laughs> Yeah. Blake asks what they should do with uh, Mabel Lane Fox's food. She says that she that they can have it, and she hopes they choke on it. Boom! Yeah. She's so great. Mm-hmm. I love her. Mary asks what their next move is, and then Blake says that that was just a scene they had to play. And I'm like, is it? Right. Uh, and then a giant hunk of meat gets wheeled up, <laughs> and we are treated to the intriguing information <laughs> that Blake likes his meat, his beef pink, but not raw. Right. So is that a double entendre? <laughs> I don't know. You saying he doesn't want the carpaccio? Like, uh, I guess he doesn't. Yeah. I'm like, also, didn't they already like you know? Yeah, it seems. Raw. To, it seems to have been cooked already. Yeah. So like, there's a giant have to cooked... send it back. Like, right. and also, did you order this whole roast <laughs> right. for the three of you? <laughs> what kind of restaurant is this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, is this like you know medieval times or something? <laughs> Uh, it is after dinner in the library, and Bricker and Branson come in. Uh, they apparently didn't spend much time by themselves. They wanted to join the ladies. What on earth would they talk about? I know, right? That must have... So, uh, I'm Irish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not interested in that at all. <laughs> Do you know anything about art? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Do you think McGee would bone me? 
I'm not comfortable with this. <laughs> well, let's go through. Anyway, the Dowager Countess tells Edith to come. I guess it must not. Or maybe they're going to the small library. I don't know. But she says, come with me, Edith. I want to show you a book. In her own house? Right. The two of them held off with Rosamond. And then Isabel asks Branson about the homely liberal, says they haven't seen her around. Branson asks if that's a surprise. <laughs> Isabel says that nothing wrong with being disagreed with. It keeps you on your toes. And Brans- She seems like the kind of peak person who, like, when it's really cold, that is like, ah, keeps Simone's mind sharp. Brisk air. <laughs> like, ugh, shut up. Quit putting a positive spin on things, Isabel. <laughs> she won't. <laughs> uh, yeah, Branson says, oh, Lord Grantham must have been on point. <laughs> uh, but... Isabel hopes they haven't broken up, but Branson's like, uh, yeah, she left. Isabel's so sorry to hear it. Uh, she then asks Rose about Atticus, and she says that he is starting a job in London and that he, he was interesting. And his family, uh, well, he's not like the normal chap. His family are interesting because they were driven out of Russia by the pogroms. And Isabel is like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I'd like to think she's startled by, like, I just feel like Rose, like, learns a new word. <laughs> and she's yeah. like, well, I'm going to use this in a sentence every day for a week and then write it in my diary. <laughs> and everybody's like, uh, remember when she kept saying loquacious? <laughs> <laughs> I also think Isabel's startled because she's just realized that she has to uh, continue having a romance this season. <laughs> she was like, oh, I thought I could outsource this to the young people. <laughs> Edith tells the Dowager Countess that she didn't tell her about Marigold because the Dowager Countess would think it was a mistake. And the Dowager Countess is like, uh, yeah. It was a mistake. <laughs> right. Rosamond says it's too late now. They can't ch- send the child back to Switzerland. Yeah, the Schroders have a 90-day return policy, so. <laughs> and that Mrs. Pigman's at the point of explosion. Uh, she wouldn't be if Edith would just shut up. And if Rosamond had not insisted on going to her place. Anyway, Marigold apparently needs to leave because this is all her fault. <laughs> Edith asks where we'll go. Rosamond says that there's no we about it. They'll ship the kid to a boarding school in France where they don't ask questions. And she can even visit as long as she doesn't reveal her secret identity. <laughs> the Dowager Countess says she knows it sounds harsh, but it's the best way. Hello, um, I'm here for this child. My name is Keith Raleigh. <laughs> McGee stops by to say that they're all going up and the car is ready for the dowager. Rosamond says they'll settle the details, but this is for the best. I think this is also a terrible solution. Right. Like, in a sea of terrible solutions, <laughs> I rate this one, like, a four out of ten. Yeah. But, like, again, isn't the best solution to just have Mr. Drew be like, listen, Margie, I lied to you. Uh, guess what? This yeah. is Lady Edith's baby. I mean, it's not going to be good. Right. But at least then she knows what they're dealing with. Yeah. I mean, you know, and it may be too late for that, but it's still, you know, worth a try. Yeah. Oh, well. Baxter's just finished telling Molesley her whole boring life story. (laughs) (laughs) He says that he thinks Baxter is a victim in all this and asks why she didn't tell him sooner. And Baxter's like, hey, quit mansplaining my own crime to me. (laughs) Yeah. She says that she knew he would say that she was a victim in it. And Mosley says that she shouldn't punish herself forever. And she says, well, anyway, she's learned something and that she'll never let herself be controlled again. And she's got to go because, you know, they all have jobs. Do they? <laughs> what are they, like a bus or something? <laughs> Carson enters Mrs. Hughes's parlor and Mrs. Patmore is there telling Carson that she's taking his advice in a way, uh, which means not at all. <laughs> She says she's found a cottage in Houghton Lascern, and she's going to go look at it and would like Carson's advice about it. She says that she is planning to rent it out for now and take lodgers. He says it's small beer, 
uh, which is a phrase I'd not heard before. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. Well, you have a very beer enthusiastic father. <laughs> That's true. Mine is also beer enthusiastic, but uh, not so much metaphorically. Well, he's, he's not as well read. Yes, that is true. Uh, anyway, Mrs. Patmore says it's her beer and she likes drinking beer that she knows about. Right. Uh, which is good advice for anyone who doesn't want to get roofied. That's true. Mrs. Hughes says that it's thanks to Carson's advice that she's decided on any course of action whatsoever. Uh, Carson preens and Mrs. Hughes says that they feel thoroughly protected by him. <laughs> and I'm like, why don't you just kill him? <laughs> I don't see why you're going through this charade. They just end up with another butler. In McGee's room, she hears the door open and assumes that it's Baxter having forgotten something. Which is entirely plausible. <laughs> right. But it's Bricker. Or maybe she was like, I stole your jewels, madam. I've brought them back. <laughs> <laughs> I've been stealing them every night for weeks. <laughs> I'm sorry. I yeah, buried the no, lead on this. this is a very dramatic moment. Bricker has come into McGee's room. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, you know, not entirely unexpected, but still, like, whoa, dude. Uh, he says that he waited for the maid to leave, and McGee is like, hey, what the fuck? Yeah. You need to get out of here. Downstairs, Lord Grantham arrives home. Gash. Yeah, and like, I'm like, dude, could you please do the things you say you're going to do? Yeah, I know. Like, you're like, oh, I'm not going to London. Wait, I'm going to go to London. I'm going <laughs> to stay in Sheffield. Oh, wait, I'm going to come home. Like, yeah. just be like, just be courteous, you know? Yeah. I mean, you, you know, not that Bricker's there, but maybe she felt like, you know, sleeping naked or something weird. Like, you know, yeah. she could finally let, let herself, le- maybe she was looking forward to really having the whole bed to herself. Yeah, she you know? heard about, you know, uh, you know, those, the, the uh, moon, 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 Moonella. Moon, Moonella, yeah. She heard about Moonella. She's like, oh, this naturist thing sounds intriguing. <laughs> I'll try it tonight. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Carson tells Lord Grantham that Baxter just came down, so he's sure McGee is still awake, and he can, you know, get up there and, and take off his cape. Okay. <laughs> up in a room, McGee asks Bricker, asks Bricker to leave for a third time, but he says he doesn't know when he'll be back, and she knows something's happening between them, and he asks, when has someone ever cherished you? Uh, he's seen her family ignoring or passing her over. Uh, G at no point in any of this is having any of this. No. No. She is not at all. Which, like, good on G. Yeah. Because she's very clear from the beginning. Like, she is unwavering. She is like, absolutely not. Right. G is not about this. No. And it's, you know, and it's it's interesting because the way they led up to it, I wasn't 100% sure that she, I mean, I didn't think she'd be like, you know, stoked about it. Yeah. But she might have been she tempted. Might, well, you know? and look, I mean, she's been treated pretty shabbily by Lord Grantham this season Ooh, up to this. His right. points are valid. Right. But, you know, she's not not cheating. Oh, what am I trying to say? She's not not cheating on her husband because... You know, she loves him. She has a sense of duty. Right. And she knows what her role is, and she takes pride in executing it well, I think. Yeah. And, you know, she has her own qualms, but, you know, I think she definitely thinks of herself as a role model for the county. Right. And she also thinks that she she can deal with Lord Grantham. She may be, you know, it may not be going great right now, but she she's known him 35 years. Yeah. And she can work it out mm-hmm. and she feels that she can make her own she knows she can make her own voice heard eventually yeah. through her own ways. So, as McGee is trying to tell Bricker all this basically, Lord Grantham comes in and he's like, "Hey, 
So the dinner ended early, and I hope it's not a disappointment. Uh, what's up? Yeah. McGee says Bricker was just leaving, and Bricker says that he wasn't there at McGee's invitation. Lord Grantham says, then perhaps you will leave at mine. Which is pretty awesome. Yeah, that was solid. So Bricker starts to head out, but Lord Grantham isn't quick to get out of his way. McGee asks Lord Grantham to let him go, but Bricker decides that he is going to state his case for sleeping with Lord Grantham's wife. Which is uh, an unusual strategy. <laughs> Not a strategy I think he's thought through. Right. Because I... McGee, it's not like McGee even said, oh, I would totally sleep with you except for my husband. Right. She was just like, nope, shut it down. Nothing doing, Buster. Yeah. We should also take a quick aside and note another thing that Bricker has not thought through in this scene. <laughs> <laughs> which is his uh dressing gown or whatever. oh my god it is heinous it is it is like a little lighter than navy blue with this like floral pattern <laughs> yeah and what can only be described as a puce collar <laughs> with a 3d print of the labyrinth on it like it is so ugly yeah it is so ugly yeah it is so ugly yeah like even if he had had a chance that would have killed it yeah Anyway, yeah, he tells Lord Grantham that he should have known this would happen when he ignored McGee and that he should have known not every man would be as blind as he is. So Lord Grantham decides to punch him. And I like the way they play this because there's a pause, like the briefest of pauses, and Mm -hmm. then Lord Grantham just reels back and wallops him. Yeah. And I'm like, what? Yeah, I know. We We very rarely get into fisticuffs on this show. (laughs) Yeah. We, and yeah, and boy, they start a wrestling, man. Uh, and McGee's like, you know, stop it, stop it. They knock over a lamp. Mm-hmm. And then Edith knocks on the door and is like, uh, mama, papa, everything all right in there. <laughs> Which, like, why do you care, Edith? Although I guess maybe she's concerned they were going to burn the house down. Right. A Which, legitimate yeah. concern. <laughs> so, uh, the two men freeze on the floor and McGee goes to the door and like pulls herself together and then cracks open the door and tells Edith that she and Lord Grantham were playing a stupid game and knocked over a lamp. Which is the worst cover story I have ever heard. Right. Couldn't she have been like, your father came home blind drunk? <laughs> that would have been better. And knocked yeah. over this lamp. Yeah. Um, or it's Baxter. She's right. having an epileptic fit. I mean, maybe she just wanted Edith to think that they were having, you know, gymnastic sex in there so that Edith would immediately lose all curiosity. My entire body just did whatever the opposite of an orgasm is. <laughs> right. So you're suddenly you're no longer interested, right? That's actually See, a really that's, good point. Yeah. ISIS could have been in there. <laughs> that's true. ISIS could have been getting into some shenanigans. Yeah. You know how she is. I do. I don't. Anyway, Edith, whatever she thinks about that answer is clearly not going to get anything else, so she heads off. Uh, a bricker's like, well, that's my exit too. Please stop hitting me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although McGee is like, hold up and make sure that the coast is clear before yeah. she lets him out of the room. Like, come on, dude. So he leaves and McGee says, Golly, what a night. Kind but of even, like uh, uh, the civil crawling memorial <laughs> golly cannot save you in this situation, McGee. Yeah. As Lord Grantham says, he is going to go sleep in this dressing room. And McGee puts her face in her hands. Question. Wasn't Edith sleeping in his dressing room? 
because of the fire and hopefully she's not currently still sleeping <laughs> in this dressing room because that is going to get awkward. In a hurry. Yeah. She'll be like, oh, what's the matter with you, Papa? Oh, that Brooker chap tried to bone your mother. <laughs> you think you've got problems? My bastard child's being raised to be a pig. <laughs> that would be a fun sitcom, actually. <laughs> that would be. Uh, father-daughter dance? Eh, yeah, that's not bad. As a name? No, he could be like, oh, that silly game we were playing was to see who would get to sleep in the bed tonight. I'm afraid I lost. <laughs> Down in the servant's kitchen, uh, Carson is discussing plans for the cocktail party, we think? Right. Yes, well, yes, yes. it is. We figured that we'd, yeah. Yeah, and Mrs. Patmore asks why they're not giving a proper dinner, and Carson supposes they must move with the times. Uh, you know, for those of you playing along at home, every time Carson says something like that, you all have cirrhosis now. <laughs> um, Thomas uh, very darkly hints around about the cops, and then the bell rings for Anna to go to Lady Mary. Bates asks Thomas why he's pestering Anna. Thomas says it's because he feels like it. And once again, I wish Jimmy Kent was around. Yeah. I just, ugh. It's not that I need Thomas to be nice all the time. This is just so unmotivated by anything at all interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, I love the way he says because he feels like mm-hmm. it. You know, and there's like something there, but then... It's just not see, in well, service the, of anything. Right, and that's the thing. And he's got this other storyline going on that is at least something different and is about him. But there's this whole other pointless meddling thing grafted in that doesn't have anything to do with anything. No. Well, and it's like, why can't we see more of, like, what that's about, you know? Like, even if it's a reveal, like, you know, who are these choose-your-own-path people? Is this a situation where he has to go back and check in? Yeah. Like, we see other servants outside of this, like, milieu or whatever. Like, mm -hmm. why can't we see that? Well, and why didn't they... They could have started rehabilitating Thomas somewhat. Like, in that scene with Anna, you remember? Mm -hmm. You know, because with this, like, this last thing with Baxter was, like, the last scheme he actually had working. Yeah. Like, maybe just be like, my only friend is gone. I'm stuck with these people. I've gotten the last promotion I'm ever going to get until Carson dies. And my only friend is gone. Yeah. And he could we have... We already it. said that. Sorry. Yeah, I know. But I thought yeah. you were talking about O'Brien, but then I oh, realized right, you're talking right. about Jimmy Kent. Yeah. But, you know, and you could, you could have a bit of a change of heart and navigate that, and then people would care more about this thing that he's going through. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Meme! <laughs> Uh, we see servants rolling up a carpet, and we see Mr. Bricker making his exit. Uh, we note that he tips Carson on the way out. Uh, although, everybody should be tipping Carson. Everybody should be tipping Carson on their way out, but, you know. What else? Alistair Bruce just woke up one night. We haven't shown anybody tipping Carson. <laughs> he calls Neem at 3.30 in the morning, and he's like, what, Alistair? Oh, I'm sorry. I could call Julian. <laughs> also, call me Oracle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he also uh mcgee watches him leave out the window and she looks very disappointed yes at the cocktail party cocktails are circulating carson announces some people including a lord howard of glossop which i liked because glossop is one of the main antagonists in the g's and wooster books uh glossop is also one of the antagonists at least in the stage version of jekyll and hyde oh McGee says to Lord Grantham that she forgot, you know, that lady's father died. Lord Grantham freezing her out the whole time. Yeah. And Mary's there. Edith's complaining about shipping off her baby to the Dowager. The Dowager says not to be ridiculous. Edith thinks there must be another way, but the Dowager is unlikely to agree. Perhaps we could steal the baby again. That's always worked in the past. (laughs) 
Isabel and Murty arrive together. Uh, the Dowager Countess goes over in that direction. Uh, she, Isabel wants to sit down and Murty asks if she's tired. She says no. She foolishly twists at her ankle getting out of the car. And then the Dowager Countess, this is a weird thing. Yes, it is. The Dowager Countess says Murty will have her on the operating table as soon as you can say knife. And I'm like, you know he doesn't really think he's a doctor. <laughs> right. At no point he's, he's actually been at great pains to point yes. out mm-hmm. that he's not a doctor. Yeah. That line really uh, is weird. Uh, McGee says that she's very jealous of Lady Ingleby's pearls. Lord Grantham continues ignoring her. Yeah. I'm very irritated with him. Yes. About this. Yeah. Down in the kitchen, Pat Moore sees that Daisy is still studying, so that's good. She's kept it up uh, and tells her to remember to turn the light off when she's done. Then Edith comes down, and Pat Moore is naturally startled. As are we. Yes, but Edith says she wants to make a private call. Uh, so she says, Pat Moore says that she's sure Carson wouldn't mind if Edith used her phone, since it's her house, uh, and says goodnight. Edith goes to the phone and says she would like to make a trunk call to London. Incidentally, a trunk call is a long-distance phone call placed from within the same country. Good to know. So FYI. Yeah, neither of us knew that. A.K.A. any phone call ever now. <laughs> right. So that's the episode. Yeah. Uh, it was a good episode. It was. It was a lot of action. Yeah. A lot of things happened in this episode. Things that have been kind of boiling uh, came to a full boil. Yeah. You know, Mrs. Pigman finally laid down her ultimatum. Bricker finally made his move. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Mosley finally found out Baxter's boring secret. Right. So we may finally really be rid of yeah, that story. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which brings us now to the Abbey Award. Hooray. First of all, we have Worst Decision, and that goes to... Mr. Bricker. Mr. Bricker. That's, a, again, an easy one. I honestly don't think... Well, look, McGee shot him down earlier. Right. When he was trying to, like, be like, uh, hey. Mm-hmm. She was like, listen, dude. And he was like, you know, can we do this again? And she was like, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, because she knows what's going on. She and does. And she's like, yeah. no, dude. Like, yeah. we're not going to let it get that far. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just super ballsy yeah to walk in there and like and i understand that he felt like he was on a timeline yeah well and the other thing i'll say is he had a reasonable expectation that lord grantham wouldn't come and that they wouldn't be discovered Mm -hmm. and he had a reasonable expectation that i believe it's true that even if she had eventually that she would as it worked out if lord grantham hadn't come she would have eventually convinced him that she really wasn't going anywhere with it yeah he would have left and she would not have told lord grantham i agree I completely agree, but that is not how it worked out. It's And still, anyway, that's just... It still would have been putting McGee through something that she did not deserve to go through. Absolutely. Even without Lord Grantham getting involved. So, Bricker, we're ashamed of you. Yeah. Next up, we have Best Evasion. Uh, That goes to Anna, and I forget why. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just her... She evaded some police questioning, I guess. Yeah. Oh, right, because she didn't say she had anything against Mr. Green. That was what it was. Right. And as we said, a lot of things that had been being evaded stopped getting evaded this episode. But she she kept on evading. Oh, yeah. That one is going to evade us all into the grave. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Worst overbite goes to... Spectalnikov. Which I cannot say for the life of me. <laughs> right. And I invented it. You did, yeah. But now I can't say it anymore. Yeah, well, I may have, you may have invented it slightly differently, and I just write it the way I like to say it. Well, so. which is pretty much just all of Russian literature, so uh, <laughs> yeah, that's I true. stand by it. Uh, but yeah, and I think we gave it to him before, but nonetheless, his... He continues uh, to be a reliable source of overbitiness. Yeah, his... Uh, I mean, because even before he got all anti-Semitic... 
he was he was just saying, well, what's the point of life if we're not rich aristocrats? Yeah. So yeah, pretty overbitey. Next up, we have the cutest baby award, which goes to Marigold by default. Yes, not that cute. Well, and also for her super on point uh, weeping <laughs> when addressed by her aunt Rosamond. Yeah, so like, well played there. You may be the ugliest baby Marigold, <laughs> but uh, philosophically, we feel very aligned <laughs> with you. That's right. Next, we have the Gibson Girl Award. And that one goes to Rose LeClaire. That's her first win this season. I think you're right, Which yeah. is unusual. M- uh, McClaire. Oh, yes. Thank you. Not I, LeClaire, but no. can you even imagine? <laughs> like, wow. Uh, Yikes. He would hate her. Yeah. That's that's a whole... Yeah. We can't write that's that... That's an oil and water situation. Yeah. We can't write that fanfic. Sorry, yeah. guys. <laughs> um yeah, she wore a lot of really cute stuff. Mm-hmm. I really liked her outfit. I believe it was at the cocktail party. Uh-huh. It was like the Ur Rose dress. Yeah, that like... It was kind of actually a rose color. Mm, yeah. And it had, you know, a lot of like spangles on it and she was wearing a cute headpiece. Right. Um, You know, gloves, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I also really liked the dinner where she was explaining that she had met Atticus. She wore right. a really cool um, sort of like cap. Yeah. Like a jeweled cap. Yeah. That was very cute. It was. Um... She had a jaunty rain ensemble. I kind of didn't like that because it reminded me of the caps they wear in the dystopian children's trilogy, the tripod story. Uh, Uh, But that is totally idiosyncratic. Um, But I thought, I mean, I thought in general it was a pretty good looking episode fashion wise. It was. There was very little that really stood out to me uh, as being horrible Mm -hmm. in the way that it has been. Although I will say uh, Rosamond's hats (laughs) are uniformly terrible right like they're so bad yeah i think she was rude to her milliner years ago and does not know yet that her milliner is just pawning off all her worst hats on yeah (laughs) uh next we have the fashion backwards award for backwards fashion aka the backy yeah so this was a point of contention yes because you know uh terrible hats on rosamond right uh Bricker's bathrobe. <laughs> yeah. We're not nearly... for our reticence to award two Abbey Awards to the same character in the same episode. Yeah, that might well have Might have it. done it. Yeah. Uh, but we decided to go with the homely liberal. Right. Just because we won't have her to kick around anymore, <laughs> apparently. Right. And and I can see this is I mean, I actually actually see disagreement on this one as well. Maybe you like this stuff, but she wears these really like primary like mm-hmm. red and blue and she just looks like an illustration no she's doing a really bad job of color blocking and i mm. just can't get behind it she had a really ugly scarf on oh right i just uh, just no yeah. sorry homely liberal uh we're not gonna miss you we're kicking you on the way out yeah don't so. let the capitalist door hit you on the way out <laughs> and then finally we come to everyone's favorite award the maggie smith scale of maggie smith's and we're going with three Maggie Smiths this week. Yeah, it was a pretty uh, pretty low tide week. Yeah. You know, I mean, because there was good stuff and it was just nice to see her being like, hey, you idiots, why did you not follow my advice and all yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but like her, we don't quite understand her quixotic crusade crusade against Murdy at this or point. Or that last line about the operating table. Like, do you think right. this is the Nick? Like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, some, some ups and downs. But, you know, yeah. Three. Three Maggie Smiths. Yeah. Solid three. Yeah. Pick it up next week, Max. <laughs> All right. So that does it for Downton Abbey, Series 5, Episode 5. And until next time, up, up yours, yours downstairs, downstairs. Luncheon out. <laughs>